Digital Gonzo, episode 97, dated Thursday the 30th of August 2012, The Legend of Aang, book 2, Earth. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. Welcome back to Digital Gonzo for what has become our fastest downloaded and most insanely popular series of podcasts. In two weeks, we've jumped from an average of 500 listeners to 2,867. So I'd like to welcome all of our new guests. I hope every one of you stays with us. We have some fantastic reviews coming up after Avatar closes out, including Firefly, the first Halo game, Monster House in time for Halloween, and in the run-up to the theatrical release of The Hobbit, we will finally be covering the Lord of the Rings movies. Really looking forward to those ones. And in three weeks' time for our 100th episode spectacular, myself and my guests will be discussing a list of what we believe to be the ten most important games of this console generation. Joining me once again to discuss the second season of Avatar tonight, Daniel Floyd, Pixar animator and voice of the Extra Credits video game industry lectures, now playing on Penny Arcade TV. Hello there. Joshua Garrity, podcaster for the splendidly thorough video game podcast Kane and Rince, and creator of Gonzo Planet's animation archives. Hello there. From the Gonzo Planet community, Sharon Shaw. Hello. Jerome McIntosh. Good day, sir. And Dwayne Griffiths. Hello. Welcome back, lady and gentlemen. Again, there will be book two spoilers throughout, so we recommend you see up to the end of this season before listening. And going through book one episode by episode last week seemed to work fairly efficiently, so we're going to do that today again. But before we start on Earth, we forgot the 17th episode of book one last week, so let's briefly cover the Northern Air Temple. That's the one with the, uh, the disabled lad. And also his father, who uh, actually invents something that becomes really significant later on, but I don't want to go into too much detail, uh, because I don't want to spoil book three. Well, if if you're listening to this now, you've seen book one, so you know it's the airship that the Fire Nation capture at the very end. And it's definitely, like, the end of that episode definitely says, okay, this is going to come up again. Mm, It's quite ominous. Yeah. Um, th- this whole episode was about the legacy of the airbenders as well because they've been wiped out a century ago and these guys have moved in as Aang makes the, uh, the parallel of a hermit crab they've made this temple their home and initially he's really cheesed off about it because it's like they're desecrating his, um, his homeland but eventually he gets that they have this, a similar spirit to the airbenders it, it's a weird position Aang's put in because these guys are kind of wrecking a lot of cultural artifacts that are really important to him but it's about him like coming to terms with the fact that you know the airbenders are gone this is just these are ruins now this is like a tomb let's let these people you know have a life here let them make a home here because no one else is using it so somebody you know these guys are actually making a life for themselves so they might as well use it if they can. Also, Sokka 
kind of gets, well, if not a father figure, but almost a mentor-like figure in The Inventor. Oh, it's, some, it's someone who takes him seriously for a change. Well, it's somebody who's kind of on the same level as him. I think he's far more intelligent, but he kind of thinks about things the same way Saka does. Mm. Uh, Saka? You're worse than the film. Yeah, God, Jesus. Um, but, you know, somebody who's sceptical, but, you know, those questions lead to those kind of inventions. It's like, what if I did this? Bam, I've got an invention. And it's something that, like, I, of course we know that isn't the case, but, you know, Saka could have become an inventor just like this guy. Mm. One thing I um, want to say about it, actually, there's a lot in... Uh, Avatar. Are we calling it Avatar or? Yes. Yeah. There's if a we ever need to refer to James Cameron's Avatar, it will be referred James to as James, James Cameron's, Cameron's Avatar. Avatar. Okay. Um, there's a lot in Avatar to do with um, the idea that a certain force or um, or power or something like that can't be bad in and of itself. And I think in this one, you get kind of that steampunky type technology that's then set against the Fire Nation's very industrialized type of technology. Mm. Um, and it, it gives you, before you really launch into the whole, um, you know, what the, the Fire Nation are doing with coal and steam and, and the very destructive machines that they're building, here's some people who are using machinery in a very positive way and in, um, because they're emulating the airbenders in a very enlightened way, um, which is quite a nice little juxtaposition to have, as I say, just before you get into this. Otherwise, there would be a slight risk of being very, you know, technology bad, industry bad, anything that, that goes beyond people sitting in trees and... You know, so kind of like Tolkien then. Bad. Yes. Kind of okay. like thematic foreshadowing as well, but just seeing the old world and uh, old ruins changing and evolving in technology, kind of growing out of them for what the uh, Korra series is going to become and how the world is going to be changing. I think it's kind of nice seeing the early mm -hmm. roots of that industrialization taking place. Yeah, yeah. that's very Great. true. And also, um, obviously, you've got um, more uh, disabled characters in an anima animated show now than most animated shows, I would say. Yeah. yeah. You have Toph and uh, the, the uh, kid in the chair. Mm. Even the inventor's down to, what, two fingers? Two fingers on one of his hands. Yeah. And that on technically thumb. counts as a disability. Yeah. So if we start with the Avatar state, that's where um, they explore what happened to Aang repeatedly when he got, he got uh, very emotional in the first series. I really like the concept of the Avatar state because um, initially when I was watching season one I kind of figured Aang was just poking out um, mm. to you know simplify it but um, it, it, what it seems like is going on is that he's being possessed yeah. and being imbued with all the knowledge of every single Avatar who's ever existed all mm. at once and so because he's so unfamiliar with it, it's like, oh, I have no control over what I'm doing, because it's almost like all these people are in his body at the same time. Mm. Um, and I also really like that, be because this state is so powerful, they have to have some kind of rule that says, okay, there's, there's this one thing that you need to consider, and mm. that is, if you are killed in the Avatar state, that's it. No more Avatar. That actually adds far more of a layer of tension to it, rather than just, oh, he's in the Avatar state, everything's going to be fine. Yeah. It actually adds an element where you you may not always want him to enter the Avatar state. You actually, it establishes that 
Yeah, because you're right. Up until now, it sort of has seemed like the ultimate solution to any bad problem that the group might get in. But now, the this episode kind of establishes that that state is a defense and actually a huge risk and yeah. is not going to be a guaranteed. And you can't just fall back on, well, we'll just wait for Aang to hook out and that'll fix everything. Mm. Because Aang hooking out could actually cause a lot more harm than good. Yeah. And it's, it's, it... It goes beyond the actual show itself because if the uh, if he's killed in the Avatar state and that ends the the very nature of of the Avatar, then that's the entire series over with. <laughs> so it's something that if it if it uh, ever happens to a future Avatar, uh, could could be catastrophic. So there's there's a real genuine tension there. It's, it goes beyond the lives of the individuals. Josh, I actually interrupted you. Is there any more to that? You were oh about? no, uh, I my point was finished. Don't worry. Cool. This is probably the first one where they really start talking about invading the Fire Nation and actually uh, being proactive with their attack rather than simply to worm around them and see if they can get you know, uh, the Fire Lord defeated out from under their noses. It's also I'm the also one where uh, we first get Azula and a sense of how vindictive mm-hmm. she really is when she meets yes. Zuko and Uncle Aro and yeah. uh, convincing them there's a message from the Fire Lord to request them to return home, but it's mm-hmm. actually to take them home as prisoners. I like the fact that both uh, Zuzu and Iroh are not caught off guard on that one. Neither of them trust Azula. I really like Azula as a new villain in this yeah. series. Like, like for the most part, Zuko was kind of more of a mild irritant to Team Avatar in Book 1. Like, he'd show up, but you never really feel that threatened, because he's kind of bumbling and he's got Iroh with him, and Iroh's not threatening at all, so it's kind of... you're never really that worried. But Azula is genuinely threatening, and... While you may grow, and while you're eventually going to grow to like and identify with Zuko, the more you learn about him, the more you learn about Azula, the more terrifying she becomes. Yeah, like mm. you start realizing how actually insane and broken she is. She gets even more scary. So she, I think she's an awesome villain. I think even possibly better than Ozai in the, in the long run in this series. She is. Oh yeah, she's more complex oh, than Ozai, definitely. definitely. Um, there's there's a great bit in Bitter Work when uh, Zuko's being asked to be uh, by. Our, when Zuko asks Iroh to teach him some new uh, techniques um, so that he can defeat Azula if he meets her next and he goes I know you're going to say she's my sister and I've got to get on with her and (laughs) Iroh says no she's crazy I wanted to take it down (laughs) (laughs) it's like okay Um, it's it's a really nice sort of flip on that Iroh is not just your usual guru type guy who's like everything must be at peace he knows sometimes when things dirty work needs to be done Going back to uh, what you were talking about, the uh, Earth Nation actually talking about going to war with the Fire Nation, one Mm. thing I really liked is that you got to see the consequences of the war in this episode, because there's a moment where the general takes uh, Aang out to a ledge, and he points to all the wounded soldiers down there, and he says, these are the lucky ones, they came back alive. And that was the first episode where you got a sense, okay, there's an actual conflict going on this huge mm. war and it you know it really is a big deal because all the way through season one i didn't really get a sense of that big war going on but that mm. in that short moment they go yeah people are dying and every every time you waste a, an episode getting into shenanigans with a, a crazy town more people die yeah which really it puts the pressure on ang so his decision to yeah let's go and take out the fire lord right now i'll do it in the avatar state seems like a very unselfish one but it's a decision brought about by anxiety rather than wisdom i also like that in this episode you get to see the darker side of the earth kingdom mm. basically what the war has done to certain people 
getting to the point where someone's willing to do whatever it takes. Well, fight with win. monsters and you become <laughs> yeah. a monster yourself. Gazing into the abyss. I do like the uh, last bit at the end where um, it's all been really hardcore. Just, again, Sokka brings in that humour where he cracks um, General Fong over the head and everyone just looks and is like, anyone got a problem with that? Nope. <laughs> Two lovers forbidden from one another. The war divides their people. And a mountain divides them apart. Build a path to be together. Yeah, I forget the next couple lines, but uh, there it goes. Secret Okay, so the Cave of Two Lovers is the next one, and this is the one with the hippies in it. And one of the funniest episodes, because these guys... I, I, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Sharon, but um, my, my mother-in-law is very much like these guys. She's very peaceful. She's very kind of, you know, if you sit still, then the world will come to you. And, uh, you know, th- th- it becomes apparent how diametrically opposed your worldviews are. It's also the first episode you get to see animals bending... Yeah, the badger moles. Apart from Appa. <laughs> Big badger moles. Sorry. <laughs> I really like some of the humour they mine from these characters' stupidity. Because mm. most of the humour in the show uh, this uh, thus far has been witty little comments from uh, Sokka. But yeah. some of the stuff these guys do, <laughs> like this, the thing with the torches, where they oh, say, we've got ten, ten torches. <laughs> now, so five have... torches, that's ten hours, because they're two hours each. And then they light them all at the same time. <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> oh, oh and it's, it's her kind of, oh, like she's not even comprehending it. <laughs> but like, oh, my bad, I suppose you know what you're doing, man. It's the, per- the perfect batch of characters to put up, to pair up with Sokka in a closed <laughs> space for a long time. And it, it yeah. does add, it starts to build those layers on Sokka's character because now you get, um, you know, previously it was sort of, he was the slightly bumbling, silly one, but then put him up against these people and, and you start to see that he does actually think very rationally and, and um, cohesively, you know, in comparison with um, loot playing hippies. It's a good way of saying that just because you're incredibly peaceful and faux-philosophical doesn't make you wise in any real way. <laughs> I, um, I read something earlier that maybe someone could clarify this for me. The guy who does the voice for the, uh, the bard in this, the main one, is hmm. the guy who does the voices for Appa and Momo, yes. but I never yeah. actually got a chance to The Bradley Baker. Yeah. yeah. I also like the advancement of uh, Katara and Aang's relationship in this uh, episode. Mm. Um... And also the mystery behind, did they, didn't they? Because you you're not quite sure what actually went on in those Ks by the end of the episode. But, I don't know. The thing that I like about the series in general is that they don't rush Aang and Katara's relationship. And I kind of like how they didn't make it clear what decision they made in the Ks. They went in, but you don't actually see what happens. Nobody react to what I'm about to tell you. I was just thinking that. I think that kid (laughs) over there is the Avatar. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the other thing that's really nice about this episode is we get a bit of history. Yeah. The idea that the um, the these first Earthbenders learned their skills from the Badger Moles, created the tunnels, and then formed Omashu. It's again, it's 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 a different kind of animation used. 
If they do the same thing in Kung Fu Panda, when they're telling a story, it suddenly goes into a different kind of animation. It, using animation as your medium gives you the perfect opportunity to do something like this. And if we're still quoting lines from the sh- each uh, episode, I love Aang's little misunderstanding, followed by, like... Uh, what? I'm saying I'd rather kiss you than die. It's a compliment. Mulan <laughs> puts his foot in his mouth. And there's one really neat bit of uh, comedy when they go, we're not going to go in the caves. We're going to, you know, Appa doesn't like enclosed spaces. We're just going to fly to Amashu. <laughs> Cuts to like a three-second shot of them having fire chucked at them and screaming. And then they just sort of walk sideways back across the hippies, going through the secret tunnels, <laughs> charred and covered in soot. And Appa is, uh, you, you care a bit more about Appa in this one because it's the first time he's really genuinely agitated. Yeah, I love the way he just like gets out into the sunshine and uh, lays on his back and rolls around. It's like, it feels so good to be out of there. I saw uh, my neighbor Totoro earlier today, which I got for Lyra for her birthday, and I'd forgotten not only how much like Cat Bus uh, Appa is, but also how much like Totoro yeah. he is. Definitely. His mouth reminds me a lot of uh, Totoro. That big gaping mouth that you expect mm. to have like fangs in, but then it's just <laughs> molars. It's yeah. really weird. Big, enormous teeth and a huge tongue. And that sort of big, puffy, flappy tail as well. It's kind of similar. Um, so, yeah, and then the next one, Return to Omashu, we finally get to see Ozai's Angels. Once upon a time, there were three little girls who went to the Fire Nation Academy and they were each assigned very hazardous duties. But I took them away from all that, and now they work for me. My name is Ozai. If you weren't fairly certain that Azula's psychotic, this is a really good episode to show that she will do, go to any lengths to endanger people, to threaten them into coming with her. There's a point when Ty Lee says, actually, I think fate and has shown me the way and I'm going to come with you. But I, I kind of wonder now in retrospect whether she's like, I know what you're trying to do. Yep. I'm just going to keep putting a smile on this one because otherwise you might kill me. It's a I think it is. Of her character. Yeah, that's what I thought. She, yeah. she uses the ditzy act to hide what she actually thinks. Yeah. After such a long time of knowing Azula and knowing that basically every relationship Azula has is manipulation by fear, she yeah. has to know how Azula works. And also, I mean, she does say it in a nice way. It's like, well, Azula called a little louder, but you know she knows that that... She puts a brave face on, but she was in genuine danger if she didn't go mm-hmm. with her. Um, I don't think May is actually afraid of uh, Azula. She never seems to show any emotion apart from indifference, which isn't really an emotion. That's true. And there's lots of times she will outright not do what Azula would want her to do because she doesn't want to do it. Yes. Yeah, specifically in the the, the last episode of this series, when she says, just take the bear. (laughs) And her heart is not in this cause. She's just doing this, possibly because she's bored. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird with this season because Tylee and May are kind of just extensions of Azula's will rather than like genuine fleshed out characters in their own right. It's literally how she sees them. They're just dolls. Yeah. So I would actually say Tylee is quite scary in terms of how when she flips towards you, she's smiling a big broad grin and then she'll take you down and 
then you'll be at Azula's mercy. And it's, it's like she doesn't know, or she's blanking out, what she's doing is really genuinely horrible. And her yeah. ability, especially, is frightening. It's kind of weird for us, because we, uh, I think we've, I think we've all seen Legend of Korra, um, but, yeah. and so we've gotten used to this ability, but, um, like, chi blocking, when it's first introduced, and she does it to Katara for the first time, is genuinely mm. terrifying. Well, yeah. Katara really freaks out about it, doesn't it? Doesn't she? When her, uh, she suddenly realises that her bending doesn't work. Katara's come to rely very much on her bending abilities to define her as a person. Mm. And it's a very new kind of threat for the series mm. in general. We've run into other benders who are dangerous, and we've run into even other people who are just fighters who are dangerous, but someone who can actually has the ability to temporarily remove your bending ability, that's a new kind of threat. Mm. And not just that, but it's so agile that can avoid all of your attacks. Yeah. I still really like the character, though. Even if she is kind of she is kind of scary in that way, and she always with the smiling and the really, like, scary attacking, but she's still... She adds just a, a little bit of um, extra personality to the Azula's little group and keeps them from all being just, like, really terrifying, scary... Dower faced. Mm. I think the only time she's actually like teeth grindingly annoying is in Appa's Lost Days, which she says, You're not prettier than we are. And like, eh. So, yeah, and this is also the time when we get to see Boomy again. Yeah. Uh, Another thing I like about that, uh, that episode is the uh, people running, the Fire Nation family, May's family, running mm. the uh, uh, running Omashu. Um, it's really nice to see firebender, uh, not firebenders, Fire Nation people who aren't necessarily bad. Because mm. that was a really nice family unit, uh, unit, and they cared about their baby. And when mm. the baby returned, and, and it was all—I felt like this is the start of where the series is trying to introduce the idea that the Fire Nation as a whole are not bad. It's just some assholes who run the. Uh, I cannot. I can't say that. Um, it, it's just the people who run the Fire Nation. Yeah, it's, the people are very much ignorant to what the army does. I don't think it's so much ignorance as just like you know fear for their own families. Mm. It's it's much the same way as the uh, Nazi regime in Germany. I'm pretty sure most people knew exactly what was going on, but when your families, uh, your family, and your friends are at risk, you're not going to say anything. You're just going to keep your head down until somebody gets you out of there. If Azula wants something from you, you'd be damn sure to give it to her. Yeah. You, you start to get a hint, I think, of the politics going on within the Fire Nation as well, because I, I am willing to bet that the reason May's father got that position is because May is Azula's friend. Almost certainly. Because yeah. run, mm. running Omar, I mean, Amashu is obviously quite an important city within the Earth Kingdom, so having taken that over, it would be quite a, a position of authority and respect to, to have that handed to you. Next episode is The Swamp, and this is another one of those slightly more mystical ones. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, Sokka took on board that the tunnels on the way to Amashu were cursed. He was like, oh, great. And he believes in that, but he does nothing but try to decry the hokum and the magic in this one. It's like an episode of Scooby-Doo. This episode actually has some of the funniest moments in the uh, this season for me. Um, mm-hmm. 
One in particular is when they're all like, oh, I'm, it's just a swamp. I'm sure it'll be fine. And then this giant bird screams like a human in pain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the look on their faces is just brilliant. Uh, another bit that I adore is um, the, the swamp benders. The, yeah. the, there's this like, weird little bit of deliverance style. Ding, 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 plays when they turn up. <laughs> And the, the second, like the second they lay eyes on Momo, they're like, "Hmm, that's good eating." And it's like, they don't even consider not eating him and Appa. That's one of that's their me moves. There aren't many hillbillies in kids' cartoons or references to Deliverance for that matter, but uh, they managed to get them in there. I believe these guys are based uh, caricatures on Nickelodeon execs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that has me ever so slightly worried is the suggestion that Katara and Sokka see people that they have lost already and Aang sees Toph and is then told that time is an illusion that to me suggests that Aang will at some point lose Toph ever made that connection which seems stupid now but yeah it's, it is slightly ominous it may be not what they originally intended, but they could easily make that a case with a, a flashback episode in Korra. Uh, flashbacks are blatantly going to happen in Korra. Yeah. Genuinely hope it's nothing to do with Ko. Yeah, that's really... Yeah, that struck me now. The first thing I thought about is what Jerome said last week about Ko. <laughs> mm. I like um, in this episode that you see a lot of Appa and Momo on their own. Trying to like get yeah. away from the swamp, trying to find their friends again. Like, both yeah. of these characters don't talk but still really enjoying watching them. And at least it shows that they can't get out of the swamp every time Appa tries to fly off, hits the vomit. Yeah. Even when they turn up to the uh, waterbenders, the swamp waterbenders, the, the little one's riding the big one. <laughs> now what would a, a lemur monkey want with a shirt? I also really like that they address something that was bugging me all the way through season one. Because mm. waterbenders should be, by far the most powerful benders because water is just it's life and so and have control plants yeah and these guys uh, I'm not going to go into any more detail uh, because that's season 3 talk but that is foreshadowing stuff that's going yeah. to happen in yeah, season 3 so yeah. and indeed Korra uh, some scary stuff mm. okay um and then, yeah, as I said, the, the Scooby-Doo ending is, of course, that the Neon Phantom was the guy who runs the haunted amusement park. I also like how they showed that the tree is kind of actually alive. Yeah, it's like Teldrassil. I, I like the idea, because um, trees don't do this, but there is uh, types of fungus that do this, where they'll uh, grow up and then spread out their roots, and then another oh. one will grow out, and it grows out in a circle. So having a tree that behaves like that in this universe was really interesting as well. Uh, the other thing is, of course, we know that Katara's got a lot of stuff to deal with regarding her mother, but when Sokka sees Yue, it starts to sow a seed in your mind where you're thinking, he's not going to be able to shake this girl his entire life, is he? Well, stuff never truly leaves, uh, leaves you. Um, you learn to deal with it. Sorry, I'm talking from experience here. You kind of learn how to bury that kind of pain and stuff like that but it never actually goes away. It, there's a quote in Kung Fu Panda 2 where Capo uh, says to the main villain, you know, scars heal, that's what they do. Scars don't heal, wounds heal. Okay, 
What do scars do? Fade. Emotionally speaking, this is a, uh, a scar that's going to stay with Sokka. But that's something that's visited in this as well, um, later on in this series, with uh, Zuko's scar. Of course. There's quite a lot of scars in this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, next one is Avatar Day. And speaking of Kung Fu Panda, uh, is that James Hong playing uh, the mayor? Yep. Um, <laughs> this is That's Poe's goose father yeah. in Kung Fu Panda. He's got that very funny sort of voice. It's called Justice, because it's just us. I feel like this episode is like, okay, here's some of that wacky fun that you were used to in season one. I yeah. think this episode's better than some of the episodes where they did this in season one. But it's almost like, okay, stuff is going to get dark quite soon. Yeah. So let's, let, let's give the audience something to smile about before we pull the rug out from under them. It's still pretty dark. They were going to boil Ang in oil, and he was apparently going to let them do it. Also, I think you do get the, um, the start of the rug pulling when Kiyoshi turns up. Yeah. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I did some, you know, checking up on the numbers on Kiyoshi. She was immense, like a giant of a woman, yeah. hence the in, in, in enormous feet. But she also lived to, like, 212 years old. 230 years old. So that's why she was able to be born hundreds of years ago and still only be the third most recent avatar. Voiced by the absolutely fantastic Jennifer Hale as well. Yes. Of course. Whom I hope will come back, because they could definitely do some more Kiyoshi stuff later. In fact, wasn't wasn't Korra a little bit based on Kyoshi because people were so so huge fans of uh, Kyoshi? I think so. Yeah, she has a lot of Kyoshi's qualities. She doesn't have her discipline, but she does have a lot of her qualities. She has her big square feet. Yes. <laughs> There's a really minor point, but I love Aang's ability to never actually be restrained. Mm, like, oh yeah, <laughs> like he's thrown in jail, and he just like very casually, as he's talking with the prisoners, just kind of pulls his hands and his head out of the restraint and just kind of leans on it. You think so? And then later in the in, in another episode, like his hands are caught like behind his back by the Dali stone, stone grips, and he yeah. just kind of like pulls the, and he kind of pulls them out, see? and then he goes right back to them. He's just like he's just happy to play along for a while. The other aspect of this episode is the hard choices that previous avatars have had to make in order to protect people. Kyoshi admits to the killing of Chin the Conqueror here, and as it transpires in one of the Avatar games, that she was the one who founded the Dai Li. This was a decision made hundreds of years ago after a peasant uprising within Ba Sing Se. It was intended to give the people a city-wide presence and a fighting force to rally behind, so that they would not be oppressed by their Earth King. Later, Kyoshi regretted their formation as corruption very quickly set in. This far more aggressive approach is, of course, in opposition to Aang's boundless pacifism and evading of combat, if not conflict, but hints at his grave potential for life-changing actions. Unfried dough, commemorating the day we did not fry the Avatar in oil. This is by far the worst town we've ever visited. (laughs) The Blind Bandit. Now this is when book two starts kicking off. But they've been holding. They could have introduced Toph in episode one of this series, but they held her back and just put her in at the exact right moment. Um, I think if, if people have been forced to sit watching Avatar up to this point and they haven't really enjoyed it much, there's almost nothing not to like about this episode. Uh, it's got a, a wonderful parody of the WWF. The boulder. You may be big, but you ain't bad. The boulder's gonna win this in a landslide. 
played by Mick Foley, who uh, is uh, Mankind and various other characters yeah. for the WWE, parodying The Rock himself. And the, the bit with Fire Nation, man, <laughs> is fantastic because he's not even a firebender who's actually helping out with this WWF. He's an earthbender dressed as a firebender designed just to be the bad guy in this particular wrestling troupe. So everyone go. Please to rise for Fire Nation National Anthem. Fire Lord, my flame burns for thee. Russian accent. <laughs> yeah, he's like General Adnan or uh, Colonel Mustafa or Erwin R. Scheister uh, from uh, the, the WWF from back in the day when you had to have like it's like in Futurama when they have I'm the foreigner. <laughs> I have my own customs. Look at my crazy passport. <laughs> Colonel Mustafa and General Adnan, and you may have heard Bobby Heenan and I discussing Sergeant Slaughter. Do you think that he just wants his country back? Is he really through with you two? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Oh boy. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh. Excuse me. Yeah. Excuse me. You can translate. No, and I understand what you're saying. But the, the humanoids out there and these people haven't got a clue. The man speaks 13 languages fluently. Please. How about English? English? Thank you. In, in, in wrestling dynamics where everything is black and white, you've got to have your villains, and Fire Nation guy plays the villain. And it just seems like that Toss sort of barged in there and wasn't part of the prearranged troupe, and then kicked everyone's asses. So they incorporated her into their shtick. The boulder feels conflicted about fighting a young, blind girl. The boulder's over his conflicted feelings, and now he's ready to bury you in a rock a <laughs> The boulder takes issue with that comment. <laughs> I love how eloquent he is, despite his third person. <laughs> I wish the boulder was in more episodes. You know how that, you know two of them end up trailing Toff from now on? I wish the boulder was one of them. Mm. Yeah. That He's that awesome. Good. It's worth keeping McFoley around for that. Actually sound, I thought when I first started talking, it sounded like Jason Bateman. But it would appear McFoley is also a comic genius. And doing the splits... Okay, so Toph, for folks who have not yet had the chance, and for some reason, if you haven't seen this series, is a small 12-year-old blind girl who, at home, is treated as a delicate flower by her parents who don't understand or know her and have kept her sheltered her entire life, but in secret has been learning incredible earthbending skills from badger moles. And... Much like Daredevil, she hears and feels rather than seeing, and it's kind of like a sonic wave for her. The way I describe her ability um, is almost like she's using the earth she's standing on as an extension of her skin. So if you're treading Mm. on her skin, she can feel it. She can't exactly see you, but like when somebody's just touching you on the arm, you know exactly where they're touching you. So it's that kind of like... Right, where are they? Oh, they're there. Okay, cool. Um, so the ground she's standing on becomes an extension of her epidermis. Yes. Um, and the way they visualise uh, that in this, oh, with the first beautiful. fight she has with the boulder is absolutely brilliant, seeing the vibrations yeah. come off of him and then it bounce mm. back. And her just, right, okay, this is exactly where I need to attack at that time and just takes him out in like two seconds. 
Um, and it's a great way of establishing this character as a complete badass in like mm. a few seconds flat. Yeah. And she's not just a badass. She, we have to talk about Toph's weaknesses because um, somebody mentioned on your video one of the only things you didn't do was yeah. uh, talk, discuss the, the downsides of Toph because they don't appear to be immediately apparent. She's just incredibly tough. But she doesn't have people skills. Yes. Oh, absolutely. She doesn't talk to people. She's immensely stubborn. Uh, she's very much set in her ways. Her way is the right way of doing things. She's like Dwight Schrute in that, in that respect. And anyone, I mean, she constantly blindfolds Aang when they're um, training uh, in bitter work. Because as far as she's concerned, that's the way you earthbend. You have to feel it and not rely on your eyes. Because she's never had to. Also, she keeps inside, as we see in Tales of Barsing Say, quite a bit of neurosis, trepidation over who she actually is and, and her self-image which she constantly points out she doesn't care about. And, you know, she, she sleeps, uh, like, you know, on her face, and she's a total mess, and she gets up with a huge bedhead, and she spits, and she picks her nose, and she appears to not care, but clearly, deep down, underneath, all of that bluster, she does care. I think that's, it, it, as comes out in the, um, in the little tale with her and Katara, I think it's to do with the fact that she genuinely doesn't really know what she looks like. Um, mm. I mean, she she does say as well in that episode that she can't. Um, she has no idea what Katara looks like. She doesn't do the thing that a lot of blind people do, where they touch people's faces to work out where their features are. She she yeah. doesn't seem to have any interest in that type of thing at all. It's the, the the level that your voice is coming from seems to be the only thing she's bothered about. Her physical contact with other people is very very limited, and I think that her issues about the way she looks are the the only source of doubt for her because everything else is certain. Everything mm. else, the, the earth bending, her strength, her, um, her impact on the world around her, she is totally sure of. Her looks, she has no idea. She really has no way of telling what she looks like. And that's quite mm. a fascinating insight into the, the vulnerabilities that, that she has and these massive defences that she puts up against it that don't really mm. come across like defences because she's so strong. There's... Quite a bit unresolved with Toph as well. The, the, at the end of the series, she goes to meet her mother. And clearly that's something she wanted to do and was feeling very anxiety-ridden about. But then she gets captured and then she learns, learns how to metal bend. And it doesn't get resolved in fire. There was no big Toph episode after that. Maybe seeing her a little bit more vulnerable, maybe seeing her in trouble a bit more would have been a good, uh, good episode. In which case they could easily go back and do that in Well, she even laments that herself at one point, doesn't she? We really need to talk about the fight sequence at the end of this episode because yeah, go for it. Um, up until this point, this is the best fight sequence this series has had. Um, mm-hmm. I and this is the point where I decided, right, earth bending. This is the best kind of bending, and all the <laughs> other ones suck. Um, but no, <laughs> no, I just, um, I just really liked how fast and dynamic it is and the way everything shifts and changes around Toph the way she brings up that shield around her when um, what's his face the guy who runs the ring starts throwing rocks at her she brings up that shield and then uses the shield as a projectile right afterwards it was just really cleverly done and I, I really like the choreography in that fight it's like if you imagine oh, it's water bending but without the wavy lines 
actual stretch. It, it just feels very focused and strong. And this one of the reasons why I like earthbending more than firebending is because although firebending is arguably the most powerful offensively, because if you get hit by fire, you're pretty much done. Um, but earthbending is so controlled that you can't accidentally harm somebody. But if you do attack, it's going to hurt like hell. And I kind of just mm. like that mixture of power, but also control. It's more versatile as well. Yeah. The uh, earth and water specifically have. There's so many things you can do with those. Whereas with fire and air, there's a bit more limitations. It is easily one of the best animated and best directed fights. Probably the best one we've seen so far. And uh, mm. it, yeah, it's, this episode is really fun to watch every time you get to it. Yeah. Well, as you know, it's and pretty obvious that that's the way it was going to go down with Toph, because they actually got that, um, I can't think of his name. Manny Rodriguez. One, just to do a specific movement style for her being blind, and it actually works really well. It shows how he doesn't have to be looking at the person who's attacking to be able to take them down. It's a Praying Mantis style. Yeah. Which apparently was started, he told them later, by a blind woman. Cam Clark makes an appearance in this episode as Mr. Bayf- Mr. Bayfong? Did they even call him that? <laughs> As Beifong, Toph's father, he of Dogtanyan and Liquid Snake, a legend, and He-Man, a legend among voiceover actors. I didn't notice that at all. Um, you're saying Liquid Snake, and I didn't hear any of Liquid Snake in there, but if I watch that episode again, maybe I'm going to hear it. As well as the 2002 He-Man, Liquid Snake, Dogtanyan and Kaneda, Cam was also Leonardo, Snoopy and Doc Sampson. He's had 231 roles as of today and ranks up there with Frank Welker and Peter Cullen as one of our most beloved and long-standing voiceover artists. Forget the rodent, we're after snakes. Yes, Prince Adam, and Grayskull's power shall reach out through the ages to better prepare you for what may come. By the power of Grayskull! Is that you again, Tetsuo? That bike's been designed just for me. It's too much for a kid like you. So it's true. You and I are... Yes, twins. But we're not ordinary twins. We're twins linked by cursed genes. Les enfants terribles. And this... uh... This is really interesting because I was saying to Sharon yesterday how this, this really needed uh, some resolution to Toph's story. Like she needs to confront her parents and tell them who she is. And then I'd forgotten she actually does exactly that. She stands in front of them and says, this is who I am. I'm really good at bending. I like fighting. Let me be me. And they don't listen to her and they clamp down on her. And so she just leaves. So it's like that was the end of her story right there. That was the resolution. They were never going to listen to her. And if she came back, they'd, say, they'd do and say much the same thing. I also kind of like how Toph's motivation is not necessarily to save the world like the other guys are. It's, it's mm. more about liberating herself and being yeah. able to do the things she really wants to do, which it, it might sound wrong to say that she just likes fighting a lot. But if she can direct that towards a positive cause, then great. Okay, so the next one is Zuko alone, and this is Prince Zuko just trying to be a regular guy, not firebending, and actually be responsible. And it's it's a western, yeah. effectively. These these guys have come in, they're bandits, they're they're menacing the the small township, and there's this one farm who's being put in jeopardy by them, and there's it, they're all tied in with the war. Zuko is acting as the sort of the cowboy hero who sort of rides into town and gets messed with by the locals. Mm. 
one thing that I do love about this episode is that you get to see, you get a glimpse into Zuko's past and his relationship with his family and his mother. Yeah. Through these flashbacks, every member of that royal family suddenly makes a lot more sense. Yeah. You, mm. you completely understand where, like, what Azula was like and how that has led her to who she is now. You get a much better sense of Zuko's situation, too, and kind of what's led to such a weird kind of a bipolar, conflicted yeah. it's side of him as well. His environment sort of crushed his genuine nature. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but Zuko is animated a lot in this first series and then a little bit more here with a really lined, stressed, wrinkled face yeah. just warped by, by confusion and anger. Later on, there are a lot, a lot less lines on his face and it's a lot more almost serene at times. That's not spoiling anything, but it's that he becomes a little bit more, I suppose, attractive as a character in that way because he's being less twisted up, although a lot of it's internal still. I also like that um, Zuko gets a chance to communicate and interact with uh, the Earth Nation people and um, getting a sense of the people who he's called enemy for so long and mm. seeing how they react to him. Um, I really love when he finally shows off that he's a firebender, and then mm. they immediately dismiss him. No, I don't want you anywhere near my children. Get away. Yeah. And, and it's, it's Zuko getting a sense of how everyone else sees the Fire Nation. The Fire Nation, yeah. One thing that I... I noticed about that though that all kicks off when the guy says because he introduces himself as the the prince of the fire nation um mm. and then um one of the mob says oh no i know i i've heard of you you're an exile or an outcast your own father um exiled yeah. you and they immediately all side with the fire lord's judgment oh well if his own father cast him out then clearly he can't possibly be trusted never mind the fact that it's your mortal He's just enemy liberated the farm. That's just yeah. kicked, you know, that's, that's exiled him. Surely that tells you something. And he's just. Gift- what happened to the enemy of the enemy is my friend? Maybe it's a bit more of a. Uh, like, you're not in a position of authority. We don't even have to, we don't have to fear or respect you, sort of thing. Like, if yeah. he actually was the prince, then they'd have to, like, okay, we can't touch this kid. Yeah. We can't do anything. We can't say any bad thing. We better all go to our. We better all go to our homes. But because he's, yeah. like, not in a position of authority and they know he's an outcast, then they can just hate him openly. Yeah. Without fear. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It would have been so sad in this uh, episode if just the mother had rejected him and maybe the father. But the fact that the boy also rejects Zuko, yeah. get out of here, I hate you. It's a knife in the heart for, for Zuko trying to do the right thing. It's two things I took from this episode was obviously Zuko's development a bit further. And you also yeah. find out a bit more about Iroh's past in Bossing Say with the war, yeah. sending back the gifts. It obviously cared a lot for Zuko then, and obviously Iroh must have been somewhat evil in the past and went through his own metamorphosis, uh, went through his own changes. Yeah, because um, he, he says something like, if it's not already burned to the ground, and they all laugh about it. <laughs> he also sends back the blade that had taken from the uh, king of the city that says um, it's inscripted with never give up without a fight. He sends that to Zuko. Obviously, his son's not around at this point. So it starts a bit more of the relationship there as well. Yeah. It will. And there's also. Oh, okay. I I just it's weird because um Iroh at this point is very much 
almost on the same level as Ozai. He's still yeah. bumbling and funny, but he's just kind of taking joy in taking over this city, going to war. It's almost like his son's death was like the wake-up call. It's like, it was wait, shit's real. I can't say that. Like, yeah. You can't say that. <laughs> Stop it. You get to rest. <laughs> um, it's almost like his son's death is like, right, okay, this people are dying, and this is not this light-hearted thing that I've been taking it as. They sent back a doll for Azula as well, and she was pissed yeah. that she didn't get a blade. She, she was. was. She was annoyed that she didn't get a blade. Sorry. Yeah. And uh, she actually took it at one point as well, and you find out a bit more about Zuko and what happened to his mother. Well, you don't find out what happened to his mother, but that something did happen. That's something I... Yeah. It's a mystery... It's a mystery that they put in, and they even bring it all the way to Legend of Korra, and you don't get the story that you haven't gotten the full story yet. Mm. So there is a lot more. This may be one of the most important episodes with regards to later episodes, then. Yeah, this is the start for me where it starts to get deep, and there are a lot of parts in the series that are depressing. And I'll come to mm. that a bit more later, but it's kind of like the Empire Strikes Back of Avatar this season. It's the yeah. second part. There's a lot of down. I've heard people things. say that quite a lot. Yeah. There's yes, there's some definitely. There's, it's a natural parallels where you're like, wow, that's that's so close to Empire. I'm, I'm wondering if it's supposed to be a nod and a wink at this stage. <laughs> The next one is The Chase. This is with those three grotesque lizards written by Ozai's angels as they chase Team Avatar on the shedding Appa uh, across the land. Really like the conflict between Katara and Toph here, having that Mm. clash of personalities. Um, I'm sure everyone's been in the situation where you have this established Mm. friendship group and then somebody brings in a new friend and they don't quite fit in with the dynamic that you've established mm. in that group so there's that awkward period where it's like oh, I'm just here on the outside watching you guys do your thing and in this scenario um, this actually becomes a problem because they're not just you know friends hanging out they've got an important job to do and Katara is so used to this established dynamic Toth comes along and she's not pulling her weight she's just looking after herself it's like okay come on you've got a you know, pitch in. You can't just sit there and look after yourself. We're a team and we're going to act like a team. Mm. And then and Toph completely misinterprets what Katara is trying to do. I, yeah. Toph mm. sees that as, oh, Katara thinks I'm weak, that I need help from everyone else to uh, uh, do what I need to do. But no, no, yeah. Katara totally respects Toph and her uh, capabilities, it's just about, okay, you've got to think about other people as well. Yeah, and Toph, this is one of Toph's weaknesses. She has no ability to see beyond her own nose, literally. She's so stubborn that if she gets it into her head that you're annoyed about one thing, she won't stop being super defensive about it. I do love the fact that they have Toph and Iroh have this calm conversation Mm. and they both learn something from it. I was pouring you tea because I wanted to. Yeah. 
They're, they're a really good combination, yeah. actually. Uh, I would frankly have been fine with a whole series of Iroh and Toph adventures. <laughs> it's Iroh's way of explaining things in a way that is not disrespectful to you. It's almost like he's criticising you, but in mm. a way that's like cuddling you. So it's like, Toph, look, you've got to you know relax a bit and let people help you out. But he's not saying it in a way that's offensive to her in any way. It's a and Toph very rarely speaks in terms that are not teasing or abuse. So to draw that out of her is, requires delicate work. Also, love the fact that she tells him that maybe you should tell your nephew that you need him as well. And the actually speaking of which, when uh, Ang leads Azula to this ghost town for the showdown, he's sort of. He clearly goes off the map regarding what the original plan was yeah. and sits down waiting for her. He was supposed to just dump the hair and leave her, you know, angry and in the dust. But he, I don't know what he was planning to do because he knows he can't kill her. I, I think he's maybe hoping he can defeat her and dishearten her or something. I, I got the sense he just wanted to get to know his enemy. It was not so much, yeah. um, it's not so much that he wants to have a fight or try and um, win a fight or kill her or get rid of her. It's just, I want to know who's chasing me. I want to get inside the head of this person and understand exactly what they're after. Mm. And also, this chase, this constant chasing from her seems somewhat endless, and it's not going to stop. Maybe some sort of meeting, like, if we actually interact, maybe that can bring about some end to this chasing cycle one way or another. I I don't think he had a set plan for what he was going to do. He was sleep-deprived, he was fed up, and he just wanted to find out what was going on. Also, the uh, point where Iroh turns up and uh, Azula, after having been beaten fair and square and cornered and outnumbered, spitefully aims directly at her uncle's heart with lightning. She's insane. She is absolutely out of her tree. Very much so. I really like how Azula puts on this like front of honor. I'm honorable. I surrender honorably. But she is never honorable. She always cheats. And she's she always finds liar. a way to get out of her. Yeah, she's a pathological yeah. liar. There's uh, other examples. Towards the end of this season, um, Zuko challenges her to an Agni Kai. And she's like, mm. no. What are you thinking? Avengers <laughs> attack. And it's just like... <laughs> She ha- yeah, she has no honor at all. Even Zhao was uh, observing that particular ritual. But from you can tell from the flashback um, from the previous episode that she is very much her father's child because he, he wasted no time in trying to get the throne after his nephew had been killed and his brother was in despair. Mm. Yeah. I think it's very much a case of they just don't understand most emotions. A true sociopath in both terms. Okay. I think um, Azula is slightly less so. Obviously, this isn't something that you really see until much later on when they start to go into her character in a bit more depth. Um, but there, are, there is a slightly warring element in her between being very highly praised by her father for her behaviour but not getting the same kind of praise from her mother. Um, and so there's something in her that says, I'm not 100% certain that this behaviour is the right kind of behaviour. And she's excellently voiced by Grey Delisle as well, whom I follow on Twitter. She is superb. The voice delivery for Azula is fantastic. Does her best work at the tail end of uh, Fire, mm-hmm. though. Definitely. Yeah. There's still even a, a nice, even in the first episode, though, she has this great exchange with the uh, captain on board her ship 
Or she says, did the tides command this ship? Uh, no, princess. And if I were to have you thrown overboard, would the tides think twice about smashing you to pieces against those rocks? <laughs> no. Well, then perhaps you should spend less time worrying about what the tides, who have already made up their minds about killing you, and worry more about me, who's still mulling it over. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Do you have that written down? I did, yeah. I, did. I had to write that down, because <laughs> there's no way to remember it. But, like, that's a great... Like, it's, yeah, it's still, like, villain, like, I, I kill my underlings villain kind of line, but it's delivered so... Yeah, but it's still delivered so well. It's, she's this is a character that could easily cross into just really like sneering villain, cackling kind of thing. But she's actually genuinely threatening. And later on, when you get to understand her a little more, like you kind of feel for her, even though she's still scary. You feel what bad I, for her. Well, I, th- I don't feel that bad okay. for her. A little bad. I I always feel like the best, the scariest villains uh, are the ones who have that calm, confident surface, but it's like hiding that monster that's ready to come out. So why I like Azula so much is because, like you said, Dan, she's not cackling and going, ha ha, I'm going to kill you all, blah, 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 blah. She's just very, hmm, okay, yes. And you can, even though she's very calm, you can hear that, you know, monster inside of a threatening to come out, yeah. but she holds it back. One of the things that's um, that's so disconcerting about her is is those flashbacks of her when she was a child, and, and yeah. showing that even then her behaviour was incredibly manipulative, um, and yeah. she she knew exactly how to pull everybody's strings, even her father's, and I think, to an extent. And she's entirely lacking in empathy. I consider that her mother would have was a big part of her life because she was the only person who ever called her up on her behaviour. She's one of the only firebenders who can actually has blue fire and that's because one, she's super powerful but it's saying that her fire burns hotter than anyone else's. Mm. Also, blue blue fire is purer because um, red-orange fire is actually dirty fire it's producing a lot of waste material so the suggestion that her blue fire is very pure and precise and it's not wasteful at all is really a, a nice insight into her character in general that she's this very economical and precise and never wastes any effort on anything mm. I think it, and the other thing of course is that the if, if a firebender uses the regular orange red fire like, like most of them do they're fighting to wound and if possible if required kill uh, but it's the sort of thing that you could feasibly survive getting burned by a firebender and escape especially if you were particularly fast on your feet but if they're coming at you with blue fire that is like one shot kill that there is no messing around they just want to kill you I think Iroh even says it in the, in the next episode that like the regular fire comes much from, yeah. more from emotion but blue fire is much more like clinical and dispassionate which is exactly the way she is she has this very hot fire but she's very cold inside mm. yeah does she um, use lightning in this one yeah yes she uh, hits um, Iro with lightning am I am I right in thinking that throughout Legend of Ang lightning is a fairly rare skill yeah amongst firebenders it seems to be mainly confined to um Ozai's family, in fact. The royal yeah. family, yeah. Whereas, when you, once you get to Korra, and you, you may not want to leave this in for this one, but it, it's quite a common thing. Certain firebenders use it without seeming to be particularly Yeah. Elite. In it's fact, a lot of them, don't they use it in the factories to, to power the, um, yeah. power um, the machines? It's I, I was reading... But it's, 
Sorry, I was reading... A okay, well, one at a time, <laughs> folks. Uh, Josh first. I was reading a commentary on this, how lightning suddenly becomes really common. The analogy that that person made was that uh, it's almost like technology when technology is being developed. When it first mm. appears, it's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. How, how did you do this? But then 60 years later, it's like, oh, okay, you can lightning bend. Great. Yeah. Uh, moving on. Well, so the same I, with metal, I, uh, metal bending and tights and the chi uh, blocking as well, like two things that are kind of more unique skills which eventually become commonplace. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Firebenders, they're channeling raw energy, and mm-hmm. lightning is... There's no other element in that apart from just that raw energy. Yeah. So it's far more dangerous. The way they show it is how when Zuko tries to lightning bend, he just causes an explosion right in front of him. Hence Zuko's most emo line ever... Why can't I do it? Instead of lightning, it keeps exploding in my face. Like everything always does. And it's it's so much faster than flame as well. Yeah. If you firebend the flame, you can actually see it moving across. But lightning is lightning fast. Fire squared. No room for error, which is why when uh, in the next episode where uh, Zuko says, you know, okay, right, uh, test me. And he's like, I'm not, not going to shoot lightning at you. It, if you're very lucky, you'll never have to use this technique. But as I said to Sharon, it, to get really good at blocking lightning, you'd have to do it a hundred times. And if one of those times fails, which is very statistically likely, you just die. I like how um, Iroh learnt lightning bending. Well, no, he learnt how to control lightning. He worked out how to do it by studying water bending. Yes. Yeah. But it's very much... It's this whole thing of when you adopt a different thought process to your element... You create something completely new. Mm. Iroh would have made a good avatar. Oh, absolutely. I, I yeah. also like how he's kind of introducing the idea of multiculturalism, which is going yeah. to become a big deal in Korra. Um, the idea mm. of these nations not just being, we're separate and we're never going to intermingle, but the idea of, like, for example, maybe a firebender and an earthbender coming together and having earthbending and firebending children. And it not being these separate things that are, you know, completely different, but kind of part of the same whole. Because they are very segregated, these four nations, in the, to begin with, in Avatar. And it seems like the, the, as the series goes on, they are becoming more of a melting pot. Is that just me reiterating the same point you just made? Slightly different words. Reinf- <laughs> reinforcing. That's... Reinforcing or regurgitating? It's one of the re's. Okay. Excuse me, does anyone have a razor? Because I got some hairy pits. <laughs> <laughs> we can take them. Three on three. Actually, Toph, there's four of us. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't count you. You know, no bending and all. I can still fight! Okay, three on three plus Sokka. The next one is Bitter Work, and this is the one where Aang has to really start training to be an earthbender, and where Sokka is stuck in a hole. <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> it is very, very good. I watched this one again today, and um, Sokka if, talking to himself is al- almost as funny, if not more funny, than him talking to other people, because he has to be totally honest. Yeah. I also like that you get an insight, something that's common amongst people who are kind of like the clowns or the... Uh, comic people in a friendship group is that they use that comedy to hide the fact that they're deeply insecure. Um, yeah. 
and it's great having him on his own because he's just talking about all his flaws like uh, I'll give up sarcasm I'll give up you know eating excessively and stuff like that I'll give up meat that's, that's basically all I got. all I got the meat and sarcasm guy <laughs> It's it, it's funny how little he thinks of himself because that's all he. It's like, like that's all he is in his head. Uh, there yeah. is, as an audience member, we know there's much more to him than that. But he yeah. kind of doesn't have a high opinion of himself, which is kind of weird. Oh, it's filled with self doubt. Yeah. yeah. Since the moment his father left him there and said, "You have to be the chief warrior now," he's a thirteen-year-old boy. No kid can be lumbered with that, with no one to teach them how to do it, and, and feel entirely confident with themselves. There are many, many parallels between Soccer and Zuko, though, and I think that yeah. father relationship is a, is a key one. And, yeah. and even down to the ponytail. Yeah. It's a wolf tail. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a ponytail. A little certain, ponytail it certainly tells guy. the other warriors you're fun and perky. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is the other one. I, you know, remember when I started tweeting about uh, why does Toph have eye holes in her rock armor when the eyes are the only part of her body that not only does she will, will she never be using, but that are technically extremely vulnerable because she doesn't even know if there's dust flying at them until it's too late. My take on this is that she, even though she doesn't use her eyes, she understands how significant eyes are to other people, and it's much more of an intimidation technique. He's trying to mm. stare Aang down. Even though she's not actually staring at him, she understands how significant that is psychologically yeah. on another person. Um, yeah, so that's my take. Well, that's good, because actually it was a mistake. Yeah, it's a better thing. Oh. <laughs> they were supposed to have, she was supposed to have an air hole. They uh, did it in the, uh, the original sketches. It went to the animation department, and they squinted at it and went, oh, yes, hole for eyes. And then they stuck a hole for her eyes in without really thinking about it. I like Were you just it's doing so a really dodgy Korean accent? No. <laughs> ah, yes, hole for eyes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, they said, ah, oh, yeah, I got it, man. Uh, hole for the eyes. I got you, bro. Yeah. Korea has your back. <laughs> and so they made her an eye hole. Either way, it's awesome seeing her in this rock armor. And they could definitely have sold a rock armor tough action figure. Ah, no, no girls. <laughs> no girls. But you don't even know until you <laughs> pick up the armor. No girls. You can braid Toph's hair. No girls. I love the whole training montage. Th- this, this is one of the better episodes of the whole season, I think. Like, not only do you get the yeah. great Aang learning earthbending with Toph training montage, you get Sokka's whole kind of a self-realization weird time in the hole. Also, you get, like, Iroh teaching Zuko. It really showcases Iroh's wisdom and guiding hand in Zuko's life. You actually get mm. to see him training. Like they've been saying this whole time that uh, Iroh's been teaching Zuko all, a lot of his firebending techniques and a lot of other stuff, but you really get to see the wisdom, him teaching about the uh, benefits of all of the elements and drawing wisdom from all, from each one. And also uh, like him telling Zuko how like pride is not is not the opposite of uh, is it guilt? Is it, is not the op- it's not the opposite shame. of shame, it is its yeah. source. And there's lots yeah. of... He lays down a lot of uh, life lessons in this episode. It's, it's really great on all fronts. This is the episode that made me and Sharon think, you know what, Aang's going to learn firebending from Iroh. No spoilers as to whether we were right or not. 
The, uh, the other thing is, of course, the diametrically opposed teaching methods of Toph and Katara and indeed Iroh. They've got three different ways of doing it. Toph's just slamming into you and telling you over and over again that you're worthless and that you've just you're got bad. to shape yourself. Again. Get yourself in a strong stance and do it. Do it. Be the hammer. And I don't know, I was talking to Shan about how, how I would like to be taught and what way I respond best to. Um, anyone else out there ever, you know, who's ever been had a really good teacher that you thought, no, he, he got the way of doing well, it? For me, the best kind of teacher is somebody who you both respect and are, are slightly afraid of. Not to the point where you think they're, you know, a horrible person, just to the point where you're like, okay, I really don't want to get on this person's bad side, so I'm just going to do as I'm told. Um, but also somebody who is okay with letting their guard down slightly. So I kind of feel like Iroh would be my perfect teacher because he's that person who is caring when he needs to be, but absolutely strict and firm as well when he needs to be also. He applies a very precise, you know, the right amount of force that is Mm. needed for any kind of situation. And he, you know, he relaxes a bit when that's appropriate as well. And he's very empathic as well. Yeah. Toph is too hard. Uh, she's way mm. too harsh. And I think she learns that she needs to soften up a bit to get Anne to respond. But the reason why she's so hard in this episode, I feel, is because she wants Ang to hit back. When Ang finally confronts her and says, No, I, give me back my staff. I, you're not taking it. She's like, Yes. That's the attitude I want. I don't want you to mm. just do as I say, and I want you to come at me as hard as I come at you. And then, of course, you've got Katara, who's much more sort of gentle encouragement. Although, she had a work cut out for her, because Ang took to waterbending easily, like alarmingly easily, mm. like she just had to point stuff out to him, and he, he got to it, so... It's difficult to tell whether Katara will be very effective with other people. She'd definitely be a great kindergarten teacher. What? Okay, okay. You both need to calm down. Both? I'm completely calm! I can see that. The next one is the library. Now, again, this is a visual gag, but it's one of my favourites. Is where Toph is... They're flying on Appa across this endless desert, and Toph says... There it is! what it will sound like when one of you spots it it's her making the joke so it's okay yeah. if it was you know soccer taking the mick out of her oh you're blind ha 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 it would be slightly unsettling also she and would then, then hit him in the groin <laughs> i think he'd be too afraid to tease her i don't think he ever does really i don't think anybody really teases toff certainly not twice but again, that's, that's often a defence mechanism with people who are particularly strong characters. They will be self-deprecating in just the right way so that no one else can mention the things that actually do cause them a little bit of anxiety. Oh, actually, somebody does tease her. Those three girls tease her, and they end up very soggy. Yes. Um, okay, so the library. Wang Sh- is it Wang Shito? Wang Shito. Wang Shitong, I think it is. Wang Shitong. This giant owl. Creepy. In the library. Creepy. Straight out of Studio Ghibli again. He looks he very much like up. no face. From Spirited Away. How does he pick things up? Beak, claws. Well, no, he, he just waves his wings yeah, over yeah. and they disappear. Oh, right. 
spirit powers. That's how he does it. Magic. I, well, we are talking about a spirit that brought a library into the middle of a desert, so, yeah. Nice. <laughs> I really like how it's just an owl, but they didn't want to, like, make it too crazy. Mm. Having it just mm. be this giant owl kind of lends it it feels more real than a lot of the creatures in the show. Yeah. And yeah. also, you know, you immediately associate owls because they're a symbol of wisdom uh, dating mm. all the way back to the ancient Greeks where uh, Athena has an owl and she's a god of war and wisdom. Mm. Um, and, and just, it just looks really, really creepy. Those <laughs> eyes, um, the way uh, you can see the character's reflections off of his eyes um, when they close up, uh, do close-ups on his face. It's really unsettling. I really like the way this uh, creature is drawn. Owls have got this dead, expressionless face, and they're known for being able to t- to rotate their heads all the way around so that they can look at you from behind. That's yeah, they are frightening creatures. One thing I've just realised now is it seems like the simpler the creature is, the more spiritual it is. Yeah. One of the, the panda. One of the ways that I um, interpreted this creature actually was that he's not actually. Well, I mean, obviously he's not actually an owl, but he, mm. he's basically the embodied spirit spirit of wisdom, yeah. and that's the form that he appears in um, to to those people because that's how they see wisdom. Um, mm. And also, didn't you mention something about his name as a reference to um, the guy who wrote the Art of War? No, that's um, Sun Tzu, the oh, brother right. of the kid that uh, gets given the knife by uh, Zuko. Okay, sorry. The voice actor is Hector Elizondo, who uh, played... If, if you guys have seen a film called The Princess Diaries... Yeah. No one? Yeah. 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 Uh, he's Anne Hathaway's bodyguard. He also played Bane in Mystery of the Batwoman, so it's kind of a Dark Knight pre-union with Mary Poppins. He's got, I immediately clocked his uh, voice and went, is that that guy from The Princess Diaries? It is. Uh, he's got this sort of kind of husky, very in control, calm voice. So even when he's angry, he he doesn't really raise it to a shout, which makes him all the scarier. I really like um, the moral dilemma that's in this episode as well, because Mm. um, Aang and and Team Avatar lie to this creature, saying, we're just here for knowledge's sake, we have no malicious intent whatsoever. And of course they do. They're there to find information to, you know, attack the fire. Murder nation. the fire lord, yeah. And when uh, Wong Shitong uh, confronts them later on and saying, oh, well, of course you've lied to me and you're going to use this information to hurt people. You're mm-hmm. evil. And there's that weird part of, like, there's, I don't know if anyone else felt this, where I kind of sided with the owl for a few seconds <laughs> there, where, like, he has a point. These guys are only here so they can hurt other people. I know the Fire Nation are doing dreadful things, but they they lie to this guy, and I don't know how I'd feel if somebody, you know, took something that belonged to me and used it for something that was, you know, by all intents and purposes, evil. Are they no better than Admiral Zhang? Yeah, exactly. The other humans he last saw. Morally... It, he's in the right, but as we know, things aren't black and white. It's very much subjective. The show does a lot of that, and a lot more later when Korra comes up. Yeah. 
I've only just clicked on as well that it's basically the same exact same thing. Zhao gets the information on how to stop the waterbenders waterbending. Sokka gets the information on how to stop the firebenders firebending. Firebending, yeah. But Sokka doesn't wander around for the rest of the series going, I found scrolls. I have found scrolls in the library. Yep, we know. The other thing at the beginning of this is when they go to and get that mango drink out of a bowl of ice. I Watch this episode on a hot day and try to stop <laughs> yourself drooling at the prospect of one of those. Me wanty now. I also really like having um, Appa and Toph together because yeah. um, mm. Toph. What's up? <laughs> it's it's really funny, but it, it's also an opportunity uh, for Toph to open up a bit uh, without it seeming like she's crazy and just talking to herself. She yeah. can tell Appa all these things because Appa's Appa. He's not telling anyone. Um, mm. And also how weak. Toph it because we've gotten used to at this point we've gotten used to the fact that Toph is powerful she's capable mm. now that she's in a situation where she's not at the top of her game uh, she's mm. in unfamiliar territory she's not used to bending sand um, she's not used to everything's fuzzy to her vision yeah. she can't go into enclosed spaces and help and protect those other guys yeah. And, of course, the end of the episode where she's completely helpless and can't... She, she's put in that situation where she either lets this uh, library sink into the sand and have Aang and all his friends, you know, die, essentially, or mm. try and save Appa, and she has to pick the lesser of two evils. It's a horrible situation for anyone. And it makes her cry with frustration. Yeah. Which is very rare for Toph. She never sheds a tear. There's also the sad little story of the scholar who, who comes along and is in love with the idea of the library and the legend of it. And so he chooses to be trapped there for an eternity rather than to escape with them. It's a little bit of unresolved, kind of sad storytelling. I like to think that he and the owl would actually probably get along once the owl got over yeah. being angry. But, uh, yeah, yeah I say. said that. I, I think giant house to eat. Yeah, if there's food there, he could live for quite a long time as long as the oxygen holds out. He'd help restore the owl's faith in humanity because at this point he's pretty much fed up. They could definitely revisit this library in Korra at some point. Yeah, do that. <laughs> well, it's a bit of a it's oh. a bit of a nod to the um, Library of Alexandria, isn't it as well? Yeah. Okay, so the desert. We're only halfway through the episode so far. Okay, so the desert. This is the one where it starts to get very stressful, but also hilarious. I don't know how they handle it in such a juggling act, but everyone's fighting, and you really start to feel for them and worry about them, and you're freaking out about Apo just a little bit. But it's also side-splitting with all of Sokka's antics. I, uh, one aspect I really like is how Aang is dealing with Apo's loss. Very um, badly. Yeah. It's the first time we get to see Aang really just completely open up and show everyone the negative emotions that he has uh, inside mm. of him up until this point he as we said in previous episodes that he kind of uses his like happy-go-lucky persona to hide these feelings and these emotions but Appa disappearing and potentially I mean he doesn't know what's happened to Appa so Appa might be dead so mm. That is the catalyst of, like, I don't care about anyone else. I just want to find my best friend who has been with me my entire life and now has been mm. snatched away from me. 
This made me think of uh, His Dark Materials with Lyra and Pan. I don't know if it, have you guys yeah. actually read uh, Amber Spyglass? No, I haven't. Okay, I truly recommend you read these three books. Um, but uh, at one point, Lyra gets separated from her demon, and it's utterly traumatic for her. I really like how this episode highlights Katara's importance to the group, because this in this episode, every other character's strength is completely negated. Aang, who's always yeah. optimistic and purpose-driven, is overcome with grief and despair, so he's not any help. Toph, who's usually super powerful, has lost her supernatural ability to see, so, that, so that's out. Sokka, who's usually the planner, is drugged out of his mind. And even, <laughs> and even Appa, who's like kind of usually the reliable entity that's always there, is gone. So Katara is literally the only th- person left with her, abil- with her contribution to the group, the only thing holding them together, the only one who could probably, the only reason they probably survive this. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And all she's got to keep them alive is swamp water. I, I just really like her. I don't care about the situation we're in. I don't care if it's hopeless. I don't care if there's no chance of us ever escaping. We are getting out of this desert, and that's the end of it. Like there's no yeah. uncertainty about that. She's like, we are, we are getting out of here. Come on, guys, let's go. And that She's- determination is absolutely essential. Yeah, she's been um, sort of earlier in, I think it's in the first series, Sokka sort of mocks her for her optimism. Um, but ultimately, Dan's right, it's the one thing that gets them through this. And it, it becomes, yeah. it goes from being optimism to being extremely gritty determination that they are getting out of here. She's an excellent leader at this point. Because if you think about it, really, Aang isn't leading the group. No. It's, it's Katara. The desert is also the place for one of the most surreal comedy moments in the series, when Sokka, thirsty beyond reason, turns to a traditional hallucinogenic plant for sustenance. Drink cactus juice! It'll quench you! Nothing's quenchier! It's the quenchiest! It's a giant mushroom! Maybe it's friendly! Friendly mushroom! Mushy giant friend! Who lit Toph on fire? Uh, the desert works fantastically well in tandem with Appa's lost days. It's like two sections of a jigsaw puzzle. The state of rage that Aang finds himself in at the close of this episode highlights the intensity of the connections with his friends that he has made in the physical world and how hard it is going to be for him to let go of them. So the serpents pass. We get to see for a start that that thing about yeah, you're the avatar. So are all those other kids. All Ang has to do at this point is go right. Can the other kids do this and airbend? Yeah, mm. that's a slight oversight. But again, there's probably enough red tape that she'd go. Still doesn't prove you're the avatar. How many other airbenders are out there? Doesn't matter. There's no proof. Need proof. And yeah, Toph handling the red tape is it's a great it's a great way of showing that Toph has more than just physical powers. She can deal with being handled. She has experience in that world <clears throat> of bureaucracy yeah. and uh, 
you it know, was... pol- uh, politics and stuff like that. So, uh, but like a part of her personality is that she's desperately trying to escape that all the time. Where yeah. while they're in Bar Sing uh, Say, all she's saying all the time they're there is, "Oh God, I hate this place. It's just a bunch of mm. rules and rules." Speaking of Toph, I think my favorite of her lines in all of the entire series is in this episode when uh, she when Suki saves her from drowning. Oh, Sokka, you saved me. Actually, it's me. Oh, well, <laughs> you can go, go ahead and let, let me drown, drown now. <laughs> <laughs> I also like the line, but the animal is my seeing eye lemur. And of course, yeah, Suki turns up at this point, which made me cheer because I really liked her in the uh, the first series. And um, the, I I figured she was going to turn up because it, in the previously on Avatar thing at the beginning, it called back to Sokka asking after Suki when they went to Kyoshi Island. So it's like, right, I wonder who might turn up at this stage. And uh, yeah, it was great to see her back again. This is uh, when Jet comes back into the picture too, right? Yes. And there's that great kind of moment where he's like, you know, the, these captains are living like kings while we're all stoned in F. And, and um, Iroh says, what kind of king? The fat kind. <laughs> and, and Iroh, rather than sort of preaching to them and going, you know, you should not steal what is not yours. He just drools in a kind of, oh, that'd be so sweet. I love how he's not sanctimonious. I love Iroh and his little bits of human weakness and frailty. Well, we've seen before that he's not opposed to stealing because um, mm. the episode where June is tracking the uh, Avatar and his team and they're in the oh, yeah, perfume he place, perfume, he yeah. tries the perfume <laughs> and then sneakily hides it behind his robe. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, this episode's a really strong one for Ang for me. He's trying to spend the whole episode trying to convince everyone that he needs to get on with things. He's not hung up on Appa too much, it doesn't bother him as much anymore, when blatantly it does. And then mm. the moment when the woman gives birth to the child, Ang's tears streaming down his face, finally clicks on, yes, Appa, I've got I've got to do this. It's the only way I'm going to be able to move forward, I've got to go. This That's right, because I remember starting this episode thinking, after, especially after the last one where we saw him at arguably his lowest point, Seeing like mm. he seemed very cheerful and kind of back to normal in this one, and at first I was like, oh, "That's kind of jarring and quick." But then it turns out, as you get further in, that that's actually it's supposed to feel jarring and quick. He's really trying to do what he's always done up to this point: is put on a brave face and not get and just kind of not get so emotional and wrapped up in it. But uh, and it turns out by the end that he learns that's not the best way to do it. So Dan, is it like I'm fine? No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, of course, the other thing is the uh, giant serpent in this. Where have we seen this thing before? Kyoshi. Yeah. Uh, n- it's not a no, the, uh, no, pilot. It's not the Onagi, it's the pilot, they yes. Do they mention, they mention the, the Onagi? He says, um, Suki, you should be able to deal with this. Oh, yeah, because of the Onagi, yeah. No, no, the, um, the, the big turquoise lizard thing was in the pilot, and they clearly were like, well, we've got to use this at some other point, because it's, it's so awesome looking. But, um, yeah, most people won't have seen the pilot. I honestly recommend, now that you're this far in with Avatar, um, go to YouTube and just look for uh, uh, The Last Airbender pilot. It's 15 minutes long. It's got a different voice for Aang, um, slightly different animation style. Uh, Katara, for some reason, is called Kaya, which they changed because she, that was the same name as a character in a video game. Well, Zuko's a lot more take charge. And it's, it doesn't actually take place in any real con- uh, Avatar continuity, but it feels like it could have done. There's lots of stuff that they did in the pilot that they kind of brought back in a more refined way 
in mm. uh, different episodes here and there, like the uh, architecture they fight on at the end, the, uh, the yeah. serpent beast kind of thing. There's lots of ele- you'll probably see all of those elements in the actual the messenger book. Yep, yep, that too. You'll you'll that see all of those elements times. in the show at some point. Actually, that Hawk turned up several times in series one and two. I was like, hey, it's Hawkey, before he gets turned into a main character in the later on. Well, I say main character, tertiary comedy animal character. Uh, this, I think a little bit of the whole we have to believe in hope thing, they do kind of self-parody when they um, do the, the Ember Island Players episode at the end of uh, Fire, when it's that kind of, we can't let hope go. And it's specifically, it's at that point, Katara being very, well, the, the fake Katara being very weepy. It's another one of those endings as well where um, Ang, who's going to get sidetracked, it's you see the drill, and you're like, uh-oh, this looks bad. Another one mm. of those. Cliffhanger, yeah. You also get that wonderful moment where Suki and Sokka are getting very close, and they almost kiss, but the moon is right in between them. And they don't sort of, like, you know, slam, you know, crash zoom into the moon and go, hey, kids, remember you, eh? But it's, it's just the right amount of imagery to, to remind you what is on Sokka's mind at this point. At this point, this is where I started falling in love with the show, because each episode from this point forwards, well, not this point, but a couple of episodes back, but I started to really feel it at this point, is that every episode is interconnected. It's not these, like, little episodes where they go to this town and have a little adventure, and then it concludes, and then we move on. Every episode leads on to the next, and it gives a momentum that the series didn't have in season one. That, and you yeah. were talking about this in a previous episode. This, um, you get into this mentality of like, oh, just one more episode. Okay, just one mm-hmm. more. Okay, maybe another one. And then it's three o'clock in the morning. Uh, <laughs> it, it feels akin to being in a really, really long room and walking to the right and looking at a tapestry where the story is playing out on the tapestry and it's all sort of woven into itself rather than just being a series of blocks. The drill. This episode's great because we've had a lot of character episodes up to this point, so it's nice to have an action-focused episode after all those very intense episodes previously. And we get to have a bit more fun for this episode. And that drill is a really impressive design and execution of an idea, like uh, from the inside out. Like it all sort of, it's on its surface, it's like a ludicrous Bond villain idea. But on like in execution, they really make it work and menacing and uh, both inside and outside. It's really cool. I really like Barsing Say because it. We were talking about how the different nations are inspired by different cultures, and Earth Nation is clearly inspired by China. Having that giant wall just immediately conjures images of the Great Wall of China, and it was mm. that nice little like cu- cultural touchstone of, right, yeah, of course these people would ju- build this giant, complex wall. And I don't, if you look at the map, um, the Lord of the Rings style map of um, mm. the four nations. It's visible, it's visible from, space. from space. Yeah, <laughs> It's crazy. Just like the Great Wall of China is visible from space as well, I believe. It's so massive, though, that Barsing Say is bigger than like some of the Earth, like Earth Temple islands that are scattered across the land. It's Let's have a look at the map now, shall we, folks? Yeah. Only difference being it probably took the Earthbenders three hours to build. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, apparently th- th- it was originally a subterranean city, and this, that, that's the bit they find in the, the end with all the caves and the glowing oh. rock, and then they built Barsing Say on top of that. If you look on the right-hand side... Is that 
But Lake Lao guy is on the right. Is that a reference to the guy with his terracotta army? Qin Si Huang. The first emperor of China. And didn't he have, like, there were, there were some living quarters underground or something? I th- yeah, you know what? That actually does ring a bell. Mm-hmm. If you look here, I think it's the swamp. But, jeez, as you say, a passing say is absolutely mahoosive. And there's people who actually uh, have built their houses on the side of the walls. And the, uh, the two main areas of China that uh, Brian and Michael were um, drawing inspiration from were the Great Wall and the Forbidden City. And they went on a fact-finding mission there and started taking photographs like crazy. Really paid off, because Ba Sing Se looks stunning. And in this next episode, City of Walls and Secrets, we get to meet Judy. <laughs> one of the creepiest characters in the entire series. I'm going to say, scarier than Co the Face Stealer. Uh, <laughs> just for that first scene uh, where the train passes her by and she's got that windswept, uh, windswept hair and her face mm. is just this stone just grip. <laughs> stony her eyes are just dead but there's this smile mm. on her face <laughs> it's just I'm gonna eat you it's just really I will, unsettling I will say it's even more unsettling I think toward the end of the episode when that smile melts into a devastated frown and the music goes off pitch and it's like uh. it suddenly gets this feeling of oh no what's about to happen <laughs> yeah and the uh, the bit where they get close to finding out the truth about how people see the war and they start talking about you know asking people about the war and then she sort of she's in the background there shaking her head still with the smile don't talk about it we'll be in trouble <laughs> And it's like everyone who they're talking to sort of glances at Judy and goes, uh, no, there ain't no war here and there never was, and then slams their shutters down. Don't mention the war. I did once, but I think I got away uh. with it. But the thing that really makes Judy scary is at the end when Judy 2 comes in <laughs> and says, I am Judy, your guide. You're, you're not the... Where's Judy? I'm Judy. And when you get to Lake Laugi in the next one, or um, three from now, they're training various Judies to all be the same person. Why not at least let them keep their own name so that it's a bit less creepy? This whole episode does have that, and that's appropriate because it's the vibe, but it does have this very unnerving sort of feel about it. And I love that one of the things that freaks the characters out is the fact that the king has just a regular bear. <laughs> like, yeah. like, like, surely you mean platypus bear, or anteater bear, aardvark oh. bear, gopher bear. Nope, just a bear. This place is weird. <laughs> <laughs> and as you guys were saying about the Fire Nation family in um, Return to Amashi being relatively normal, relatively loving people, suddenly we're presented with the opposition, the Earth Kingdom, who we're supposed to be rooting for, and it feels rotten to the core. And it's, I don't know if any of you guys have ever been to New York, but it's got that same sense of like the ex- exceptionally opulent and rich sharing the same space as the destitute and just kind of sweeping them to one side. So like, if you walk down a street in New York, you go from this really nice, lovely, white, gleaming uh, shopping mall, and then you accident- if you wander down the wrong street, you're in a flea market suddenly. It's, it's, that is unfortunately the upshot of a melting pot is that you're going to get people from all walks of life literally streets apart and never the twain shall meet I don't think that's true of every city though because you look at London everything shakes together pretty well in London oh my god um, uh, having lived in London I'm sorry Sharon but I've really got yeah. to disagree no, I don't, um, I've only no, lived there for sorry. like a month and a bit but I'm gonna, I'll go ahead and say no no, no, no. I, don't, I don't mean in terms of um, obviously people live in very distinct areas but in terms of um, 
shopping areas and and it seems to me anyway to be more of a mix when we were in New York it was very literally you see one type of person on this side of the street and another type of person on that side of the street and they literally do not mingle at all oh I agree with that Um, London feels a lot more inclusive than some other cities I've been in but there still is that feeling this is the poor district and this is the rich district no I don't don't quibble that um, and of course, we get to meet the wonderful, insidious Clancy Brown in this episode again. One of my all-time favourite voiceover actors, Lex Luthor in Superman Justice League. Gwen Stacy's father in Spectacular Spider-Man. More recently, the reprise of Groon the Destroyer in Thundercats. I love his voice. We mm. were talking about how much we love Marco's voice, um, mm. but he has that similar kind of authority that uh, Marco's voice demands that it's not grizzled, it's not gravelly. It's a bit grizzled and gravelly. But it, it just it has a it presence, has a presence to, it. to it and it just yeah. hits you. He's very scary and intimidating without having mm. to put much effort into it. it. It's very skilled art that he's demonstrating. He's just forceful enough but he doesn't overact at all. It's great. Unlike, of course, his wonderfully over-the-top performance in Highlander, whereas the Kurgan, he chews the scenery up, down, round and round over a period of several centuries. Happy Halloween, ladies. Uh, Ramirez was an effete snob. Holy crown, Highlander. I have something to say. It's better to burn out than to fade away. <laughs> He's pretty much Lex Luthor in The Four Nations. Oh, absolutely, it, yeah. But that's not saying, you know, he's just a, an identical carbon copy character. Luthor is a very complex character when you put him down there. Uh, was it Azula works out that um, Long Fang has worked his way up from nothing? Yeah. And so he is never going to let this huge amount of power that he's won very, very hard through the most nefarious of means um, go easily. He, he's kind of similar to Littlefinger, from uh, Game of Thrones. I'm talking mm. about the, interacted. <laughs> the books. Um, <laughs> yeah. but Still have not warmed to that guy yet. Yeah. Um, I believe I will in the wire. It, it's not suited to him at all. But uh, anyway, um, I, I just like that concept of a political manipulator who, who earned that power rather than being born, born into it. Uh, Azula has this mentality that people get power because they're born to have that power they're born with yeah. that right and if you're born poor and you're born into an underprivileged family that's how you should live that's the way you yeah. should be uh, but i was born in high society so i have a right to this power that you do not that's a great attitude to take if you happen to be from an extremely uh, affluent family yeah. oh and the other thing is of course he's the grand vizier and i think it's like in the in the textbook of villainy that the grand vizier is never to be trusted Never trust Jafar. Okay, um... And of course at the end of this one we get a Jet kicking off and gets taken to Lake Laogai and the, the genuinely sinister sense of what they do to people who step out of line. Mm. This brainwashing and hypnotism thing. Again, there's, because of the limitations of the aimed at children format, they have to be more creative about what terrifying fate awaits people who come a cropper in Avatar. The fact that Aang could look forward to a hundred years of incarceration if he gets caught rather than simply uh, being killed is more scary. And the, the idea of being brainwashed 
to to fit in with these people's ideal on the world again it's it's it really makes you feel sort of helpless for the characters and also uh, they never show you it but when you start to think about what they're actually doing and and you look at the judy characters you think mm. what they had to do to make those people snatch mm. innocent women from their homes and force them to behave this way. I don't know what they did with their loved ones, but, you know, it, if you, it's one of those things, because it's a kid's show, they can't go into more detail. But because it's yeah. suggested, it, as an adult, your mind wanders in that direction and it becomes much darker than it seems on the surface. It's clear that Vossing Say is under a great deal of threat and not at all just from the Fire Nation, that it's rotting from within with this desperation to maintain order. Um, it kind of feels similar to the situation that's going on in the Two Towers with Rohan. Um, the mm. difference being, of course, that uh, Grima Wormtongue is serving the enemy, um, but it's that same kind of... like it, it's, Rohan is destroying itself within... And so yeah. is the Earth Kingdom. And the Dai Li are also an extremely um, intimidating, rarely explored, an interesting aspect of this, the secret police. They are very much like characters that turn up a lot in Korra. Extremely quiet, extremely professional benders, used simply as tools by the larger enemy. They've transcended being people at all, they're just weapons. I also like how they use their Earth bending. It's a mm. lot less all over the place like some earthbenders are having those gloves and their boots that are made of earth and being able to make a precise either attack or just simply disable somebody very quickly and very precisely um, which is you know very peculiar because we're not used to seeing earthbenders being that efficient Mm. they're very targeted which is as you say not something that you've seen up until now it's always been you know throw a great big huge rock I think the closest you've got to this level of um, uh, small manipulation is the um, the earthbenders using all the coal to create walls and things mm. well you also get like they're usually earthbenders really in your face powerful throwing it at you the dolly are really stealthy and sneaky they use, their, they use their earthbending mm. to stick to walls and things like that they're ninjas effectively yeah. or lin kui I believe in Chinese train sequences which are effectively stone boxes propelled by earthbenders along a monorail are spectacularly impressive, showing off the scope and grandeur of this immense and ancient city. <laughs> Why is that funny? Because it is. I'm going to say soccer on it then. Yeah, just say, what do you think of soccer? What do you think of soccer? No, I'm asking you what do you think of soccer? Uh... Okay. What about Ang? Ang's okay. Oh, okay. More than just okay. What do you like about soccer? <laughs> what about poor Prince Suko? Uh, Prince Suko is quite angry. Yes. And he's catching the avatar, and when Ang for elements. 
That's right. Uh, Who can lightning bend? Uh, Azula does. Yeah, that's true. Um, I say enough now. Okay. You say enough now. Okay. Then there's the Tales of Ba Sing Se, the next episode. Maybe top three episodes of uh, Avatar for me. I love this episode. It's the one that's uh, dedicated to Marco, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll just handle them one, one at a time individually. The first one's Toph and Katara, isn't it? Yeah. They, they go on a girly, girly day out. Which, spa uh, day. This is spa day. This relates very much to what I said, uh, was it last week or the week before, about how uh, female characters uh, excel when the issue of how much they accept or reject their place in society goes. Now, for example, you, Sharon get quite angry about that, how women are portrayed a lot but you also love going on a spa day every now and then so I'm sure you can relate to this right? well yeah it, it's, it's when that's portrayed as being all women need to do in order to be fulfilled it's one of my favourite segments I think my favourite Katara and Toph interaction by far and one of my favourite mm. segments of this entire episode it's just I love getting to see it's like we mentioned before with Toph we get to see the emotional vulnerability underneath because we've seen that she has flaws with how stubborn she is and the way and she can be just very uh forceful and a little difficult to live with sometimes but we haven't actually gotten to see a little bit of self-consciousness or i, I love i love the little moment of her explaining very matter-of-factly in, in her kind of way it's like oh i've i don't really have to worry about appearance it's not really an issue in my life but you see her her eyes welling up with tears because it's very clearly the things that those girls have said to her those things have very clearly gotten to her, and it's something that she really does secretly, it's something that does bother her. But just she and Katara getting to have that moment together, and the little punch in the arm that Toph gives Katara afterward, it's just, I love to get that interaction. Oh, and both of them working together in the sauna was great. Yeah, totally. With the application of rocks and water to create just the right amount of steam. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, interestingly enough, Toph, in the, the point where she's crying, is done up at least on, only in the face, like a geisha. It's, she's got this very pale face and very uh, bright lipstick, which is very unusual for her. That is not who Toph is, but she just wanted to spend one day looking like that. And, and she's reminded very, very quickly by a bunch of uncivilized young ladies that that is not who you she is. You know who it reminded so me of? Really, really reminded me of. <laughs> yeah, totally. In the in the shindig episode, that uh, girl, I think you should fire your girl. She's not very good. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well, we'll talk about that when we cover Firefly in a few episodes. Okay, so uh, after that, you get the Marco. Like, it's not even Iroh anymore. This is the Marco episode. Over the space of a few minutes, Iroh displays three aspects of his abilities as a father figure. Entertaining an infant, playing at sports with some young lads and being measured and practical with his sage-like advice, and finally instilling self-confidence in a wayward and troubled young man. It's a macrocosm of his time with Lo Teng and a heart-wrenching reminder of all of this love and support he gives freely to those who need it in the absence of his own son. Something that makes Zuko's decision at the close of this season all the more frustratingly misguided. It gets me, and it gets me like a knife to the heart every time. Marco's dedication to that scene just re- mm. you it, I, I could imagine him actually tearing up um, while recording this scene because it's so powerful and it feels so genuine that you can't help but share a tear with Iroh as well. 
birthday, my son. If only I could have helped you. Leaves from the vine falling so slow, like fragile tiny shells drifting in the foam. Little soldier boy, come marching home. Brave soldier boy comes marching home. Marco Iwamatsu died July 21st, 2006, aged 72, from esophageal cancer. His last film was TMNT, in which he played Splinter, and Mike and Brian named a key firebending character in The Legend of Korra out of immense respect for the man who brought Uncle Iroh to life. Tales of Barsing Say immediately jumps to Aang's monkey business displacing a zoo. Which I think is perfect right after Iroh's tale because I think you needed something to lift you up mm-hmm. after that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but and, I, and Sarkas would have been too much. I did not expect a haiku rap battle. <laughs> 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 but if you told me there's going to be a haiku rap battle, what show is it going to be in? I'd have said, well, Avatar. Because it, it fits the actual tone of humour perfectly. And they build it slowly, too. It doesn't immediately feel like a rap battle thing. They take it from being just kind of, oh, haiku back and forth, and then it becomes competition, mm. and then suddenly it gets very rap battle-like. Yeah. And then there's... And then Rocka sli- and then Sokka slips up, and some deep-voiced guy comes in, and then that was too many syllables. Thus, I must throw you out the window. <laughs> Last one. Is it Momo? Or is there someone Azuko else? Azuko goes first. Azuko, of course, yeah. A great way of showing how Zuko really doesn't, much like Toph, doesn't do people, doesn't understand what it takes to actually just have a quiet, friendly conversation with someone, certainly not romantically speaking. There's a, there's a lot of stuff happening with uh, Iroh and Zuko kind of in the background on the side throughout most of this uh, throughout most of this season, and a lot of it is to do with systematically kind of breaking Zuko down a bit and getting him off of his just blind dedication to the quest of finding the Avatar will solve everything. And so it's nice yeah. in that there you can actually enjoy life around you. Life can be kind of whatever you want it to be. And so this is just kind of another small little step, an entertaining step in that process. And Zuko at some point in this series went back to being the Blue Spirit for a short while yeah. as well. That's kind of important to, to mention that he sort of lapsed back into that. And it seems like the Blue Spirit is a very negative aspect of his persona. And it's not something liberating, and it actually allows him to remove his own identity from what he's doing. But it also, um, he acts without feeling, and he acts without conscience, which is not good for Zuko. I think it, it's interesting that it separates him from his firebending as well, um, yes. which is sort of the um, embodiment of his anger, and it's a way for him to feel that he's putting that anger aside. But like you said, that cuts him off from his emotions entirely. 
very much close to the way his father wanted him to be. Mm. Yeah. 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 He excels with the swords in a way that he doesn't with firebending. Hence, the blue dragon is the dragon that his father and sister want him to be, oh. and uh, the red dragon that he's in, uh, that is the voice of Iroh, is the dragon inside him that should be taking precedence. Also, happens to be the red dragon of Roku. Then we get the Momo one, and this, coupled with the next episode, Appa's Lost Days, is a wonderful piece of visual storytelling through anthropomorphic animals. And the thing that clinches this is Momo has a little bit of Appa's hair tied around his wrist. That's wonderful. Because that makes you immediately realise this is more than just a monkey. He feels more than just, I must eat, I must sleep, I must procreate. One, one of the great things that they use constantly are flashbacks of Momo's memories and later Appa's me- memories. It's, yeah. a fact, it's to show that these aren't just animals doing whatever they can. They do remember things and they do feel things. And interestingly enough, at the beginning of this tale, Momo has a dream that he's on Appa and they're getting fruit. And it's like the dream of a monkey. And in one of my favorite comic book series of all time, Why the Last Man? Uh, Has anyone read that, by the way? Yeah. The capuchin monkey, Ampersand, the whole way through you just think he's this, you know, selfish little monkey who doesn't think about anything because he's just a monkey. But he has a dream at one point about trying to keep an egg that has the hero of this story inside safe from seagulls. And you realize that in his own monkey way, he feels something for his master. I think I'd like to amend master to companion. And it's, it's the same thing here with Momo and Appa. It's that, the, the, you know, you're seeing the dream of an animal. And then, yeah, so going, him going to sleep in this, this giant Appa footprint is wonderful. And the, the, the being merciful with the puma cat type things is, uh, again, just, uh, it's also the second time this series that someone's tried to eat him. Hmm. Yeah. Which is so weird, because there's not much meat on Momo, so... No, he's all sinewy. Yeah. And that leads on to Appa's Lost Days, one of my favourite episodes again. One thing I didn't mention when I was talking about Appa as being a great character, his eyes. They could have given him like just big white eyes with like sort of human-looking pupils in them to make him look like a big cartoon character, but they've given him yak eyes, cow eyes, animal eyes, but in a way that the pupils are large enough for you to get a sense of emotion from the character, but know that it's definitely an animal that he's definitely an animal. It's really clever balance, the way they've actually got it with his eyes. I really like the way they show how much pain um, Appa's going through, and it yeah, feels yeah. like um, a reflection of the same thing Aang is going through, that these yeah. two characters are uh, linked together and are inseparable, and when they're apart from each other, there's that hole inside them that emotionally tears them up and when the Kyoshi warriors meet him he's been doing all sorts of other stuff which I'm sure we're going to talk about but this particular moment where he's confronted with the Kyoshi warriors and he's just gone through all this stuff and he's just an emotional wreck it kind of reminded me of when Katara tried to comfort Aang when he was facing the sandbenders uh, where Suki is trying to do the same thing he's trying to calm Appa down and get him to think clearly. It's very much he's been reduced to his baser instincts. 
and he's lost all faith in everything around him and he just wants to get back to Aang. If you take that to um, a, another level of um, analogy as well, Aang is being forced by virtue of fire to perform. And yeah. that's exactly what Appa goes through. It's kind of a hard episode to watch. especially. Really? I, don't, I mean, it's I good, it but like, also just like, um, oh, like just, it's just the kind of like over and over. It's just like seeing Appa, having, yeah, just seeing Appa just go from worse situation to worse situation. It's like, oh. When the uh, the bullcupine attacks him, Lyra got really frustrated and angry. She was like, go away! Leave him alone! Because she was like, he just needs some rest at this point. It feels very relieving when the Kyoshi Warriors finally pick all the quilts out of him and brush him down and, and get, clean him off. And then suddenly Azula turns up again. Oh, for God's sake! Uh, we also get to meet the Guru for the first time in this uh, episode. Yeah. Uh, he becomes a lot more significant later on. But I really like that you immediately get an understanding of what this guy is all about, just from his interactions with Appa. That his willingness yeah. to just lie there, perfectly <laughs> still, for what seems like hours and hours, until Appa is finally comfortable enough to just fall asleep. Um, mm. Just that you know, peace of mind, that patience, that that kind of person requires to not only do that but be as spiritual as he is it allows us to trust it's shorthand to allow us to trust the guru in a couple of episodes time so, to not go hang on what's this guy's angle because we've seen how he actually acts um, has anyone mentioned this already the flashback to when Ang was very, very young and picked him uh, yeah mm, oh that's so sweet <laughs> yeah. also because of the flashbacks he actually goes and finds his old home and actually starts to chew on the place where he's raised. Mm, yeah. it's he's just basically trying to find some sort of connection, some sort mm. of haven for him to go back to. It's kind of like when you're an adult and you start looking at some of the toys you played with when you're a small mm. child and you start playing with them the way you used to play with them just to conjure those memories of you when you were a child. It's a really neat way of um, humanising Appa. Yeah. It's watching this episode and knowing that Shyamalan should have seen this episode, since he was asking about what was happening in Series 3, that makes me wonder how did they get the Appa in that film after this was available to them. He didn't watch it. That's the answer. He didn't watch it. End of. Okay. We've managed to go for two and a bit hours without mentioning the film. I think it's because there's no direct um, point of reference with yeah. season two. We're kind of out of that phase now. <laughs> I can forget about the film. So the next one's Lake Laogai, and the significant thing that happens in this is that Jet dies, and he is a young man, and that hasn't happened much in Avatar at all. It happened to Yue, and this is the equivalent for the end of season two. They're not exactly coy about it, but they don't subject you to the trauma of watching him actually death rattle, but it's a very sombre moment, especially with Toph's He's Lying. 
I love the way they handle that scene um, yeah. because it yeah. could have been so many children's shows and so many pieces of media targeted at children would you know go way over the top with that kind of death. No, why must you take him away from us? Oh, it's so bad. It's they just they just <coughs> accept it. Like we've got a mission to do. I'm sorry, you know, Jet, that this has happened to you, but we've got to go, and they leave. And it's definitely, there's that feeling of sadness that everyone's feeling, but it's not, it's just, it's under the surface. I know, um, I've forgotten the character's name, uh, part of Jet's gang. Uh, Smellaby. Smellaby. She breaks down. Mm. Um, there's that insinuation that I think Smellaby cared about Jet more than she ever let on, and that's even more sad. But, you know, the, the idea that, you know, somebody who loved him never really expressed that feelings towards him as well and also this is twinned with the moment where Iroh says to Zuko I'm begging you Prince Zuko it's time for you to look inward and begin asking yourself the big questions who are you and what do you want He's, he, this is the only time he really goes crazy at Zuko because it's like I am so sick to death of you living in your father's shadow get out from that you decide but we, as you said last week Josh that Jet is like a shadowy even more shadowy reflection of what Zuko could become if he doesn't just drop this desperate need to destroy his enemies and to please some internal father as well as his actual father I think the internal father is, has become more important to him by, maybe not quite by this point, but not much further on from this. He, he's got to realise that his own father is never going to give him that look of approval, no matter what he does. Uh, another thing that's important about this episode, the animation for season two is fantastic, but Lake Laogai is probably the one with the best animation, the most impressive, and it flows fantastically there's even a bit where um, when Jet fights well when Katara attacks Jet that their limbs warp and, and become stretched it's like a Peter Chung animation but it, it, it works fantastically like I said it's fluid and it's really noticeable because the next one the Earth King the animation looks like it did in season one and you realise that you've grown used to this really fantastic progression of the animation one thing that they do in this episode is they really hit home the amount of mind manipulation has been going on throughout the Earth Kingdom. The fact that mm. when they show Julie, her eyes are just empty in the same once again with Jet when he's trying to Judy. Judy, sorry. <laughs> and with Jet when he's trying to fight against this program that's been put into him. one's the Earth King. Now this one just seems to be a bit of cleaning house and preparing for the last two. It's not a weak episode but because so much of it involves trying to convince someone who is a half-wit as to what's actually going on uh, it, it, it's quite frustrating to watch. 
Uh, one thing I will say about this episode is that the opening uh, action sequence where yes. they're riding on Appa and mm. the uh, uh, Earth Nation soldiers start firing uh, Earth <laughs> ground to air Earth to air missiles, <laughs> to air missiles um, is one of the best action sequences not only in this season but the entire series. Not because the animation is the best. As you say, I don't think the animation here is as good as the previous episode, but because it's so tightly choreographed, and also yeah. because the soundtrack, and I can't believe I've failed to mention the music in this series up until now, but the soundtrack is so perfectly in sync with what's going on at that time. Yeah. I believe the, the track is called um, Invading the Palace um, on the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. like that drum beat that goes so well with action sequences like this and big yeah. uh, big epic battles I love it I, I sometimes feel the need to rewind it when I'm watching this episode just to watch it again I mean that walk up towards the palace where everybody's bending toss move shifting tiles Aang's breaking rocks Katara's whipping it's definitely one of the best choreographed episodes so far it's getting to see Katara do some like actually legitimately awesome waterbending stuff too because we've seen her do some cool things even since the end of season 1 but she starts doing some really like in the next 3 or 4 episodes she starts doing some amazing waterbending stuff that's like really spectacular it's like rivaling Toph's earthbending abilities this is where it really gets into Zuko really struggling to come to terms with where he's really going to go destiny wise it's he gets ill and has nightmares about Azula and Iroh, which side putting him from either side, which way is he going to go with, evil or good it's where it really gets in depth of, can Zuko make this change and break away from his father I'm just going to say this, um, did anyone else kind of find it a bit cheesy that um, Zuko kind of fell ill because he was having this internal conflict. I didn't like how it was so um, in your face like that. I would have rather it had been an emotional thing than a completely, just completely taking over his body. Is, did any? Does anyone else agree with me? I, I know what but, you mean. I don't think it's. I don't think it's a bad thing that it happened that way, but it was a little bit grating that Iroh kept telling him that that's why it was happening. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that.
So this was the guru. This is really fascinating. And it teaches little kids some really pretty weighty spiritual stuff. And pretty much everything there is really sound yeah. to, to actual practices. It's, it's extremely sound. It, when you look at the way that it's all broken down, if you, if you were going to teach chakras to a child, that's how you'd do it. Yeah. It's um, almost in- spot on. Interesting little fact. Um, which is the only chakra that uh, the guru doesn't actually uh, give a name. name? The groin. Yeah. It's yeah. called the sacral chakra. I think he says it's the base chakra. No, the, the base, the base is the base one. It's the, the, the first one, the red one. Um, the orange one is called the sacral chakra. But it, it does reference to the um, sexual organs and reproductive organs, which obviously isn't yeah. going to be relevant to Aang. Well, they were pretty smooth by not mentioning that. I don't think anyone well, went, Well, they all have element what? names, don't they? It's the, the, the yeah. earth chakra and the water chakra, which I have to admit, I've never heard them called uh, element names before. And what are the other three called? Uh, sound, thought, and insight. Okay, so there's a very obvious Yoda, Empire Strikes Back. You know, if you leave now, help them, you could, going on there. And, and that's fine, because yeah, I was like, well, okay, I'm on board here, and he's Luke Skywalker, and he's leaving before he's fully trained. The command of you must let everything in the physical world go, uh, otherwise you cannot attain true spirituality, it did genuinely seem like too high a price to pay. Oh yeah, I was totally with Ang's decision. I was backing Ang up with his decision because I mm. don't think the Avatar state and having that kind of power is worth sacrificing Katara and what she means to you. I personally feel like your emotional attachments can give you power in those kind of yeah. situations, and they give you something to fight for, which people who are only atta- who are only loosely attached to the physical world wouldn't fight as fiercely for. And I like that Iroh, in the next episode, backs him up on that decision when he says, Mm. power and perfection are overrated. I think you're wise to choose happiness. Uh, Which is such a, you know, that's classic Iroh. Again, Ang and Iroh worked together really well as a team. I could definitely watch a whole series of that too. I hadn't even thought about it, but the power and perfection thing kind of reminds me back to episode one or two when we're seeing Azula and she's practicing her lightning bending and the uh, two old crones who are watching saying, ah, almost perfect. And she's like, one hair, yeah, out, one of hair out of place. Like, that's not good enough. And she's easily one of the most powerful characters in the show. It's, it's interesting uh, to me that Aang chooses a different path for the better. See, people call me uh, a perfectionist. I've been called that before. People make jokes about it. I say, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And they go, no. But I, I would just say I'm a good enoughist. I'm very well aware of when something is good enough. It's just that good enough is very, very high for me. It has to be, to be good enough. Almost perfect, maybe? Just a few things that I go, eh, the whole is fine. No, I, I think what they're trying to say is there's nothing wrong with trying to better yourself and try and improve yourself, but making that decision over, you know, true happiness, over your relationships, over your friendships is not worth it. Yeah. I'm really impressed they could do... I guess by now the show is doing quite well, so they could do more or less whatever they wanted, but it's pretty gutsy doing an entire episode that is basically uh, Luke on Dagobah just, like, talking (laughs) about chakras with an old guy and a very spiritually focused episode almost the entire way through. That's And it says something that it's one of the better episodes of the season. 
Um, yeah. I, re- I really just want to single out a single moment in this episode, and it's the sixth uh, chakra where um, uh, they're talking about the idea of illusion being the thing that blocks this chakra. And the greatest illusion in this world is the illusion of separation. And this mm. is one of the biggest themes in this uh, series for me is the idea that everyone's connected, everything's connected, and we should stop treating each other like we're separate. Th- that person's in this group and I'm in this group. We are all one people. But also not only that as a theme, but how cleverly they edit, um, edit it and interlink it with Toth's uh, uh, journey separately where she's being trapped in that cage and she is forced to try and find links and connections where she previously thought there were none and finding that connection between earth and metal and becoming a, the greatest earthbender in the world because of that knowledge. And you get Sokka and his father, which is, uh, it, it, this is one that's been delayed for, for two series for us so far. We needed to have this, this moment between them. Sokka's father wants Sokka in the Council of War and he wants him to ask questions. The diametric opposite of Ozai casting Zuko out for questioning his Council yeah. of War. Yeah, again, well, it's like I said earlier about the, there are a lot of parallels between Zuko and um, uh, Sokka and, and a substantial portion of that is in how they're treated by their respective fathers. Yeah. By the way, the wanted posters for Zuko and Iroh say kill on sight. That's how much they've been cast out now. Just going back to Sokka's and Katara's mother. Uh, mother? Dad? He suddenly gender-bended. Um, <laughs> um, I, I really like, how, as you were saying, uh, about how he wants uh, Sokka to uh, question. He wants him on the War Council. But also, he wants... Um, Sokka to be his own man in the same way Iroh wants Zuko to be his own man mm. and mm. the difference it makes having that kind of influence in your life right from the get go mm. like Sokka has flaws, he has problems but I think he's more balanced, well he's definitely more balanced than Zuko and he's a good person, he's a decent person but he's not you know, he isn't his father, exactly. Mm. Um, and because of that, and because of the way he's been brought up, he respects his dad and loves his dad because his dad yeah. understands him and isn't trying to sculpt him into something he wants him to be. Yeah, I think that is a really um, crucial thing for, um, for how parents interact with their children, to treat your children as an extension of yourself and a reflection on you and everything they do is, is, you know, comes back to you and you want them to be what you are or you want them to be specifically better than you um, or even worse, specifically not better than you. That is a really insidious way for a parent to behave and I've seen it many, many times. The flip side of that is in, in the, the truly excellent parent is one who can recognise their child as a, an autonomous being, somebody who is separate from them and has their own path to tread and encourages them to do that um, and to make their own choices, regardless of whether that means that they end up being completely different to their parent or even opposed to them, but lets them make their own choices.
Okay, last episode in this series, The Crossroads of Destiny. Now, when I saw it first, I was really frustrated because I thought, this is going to be it. Zuko is finally going to go, God damn you, Azula. He's going to slap her down and join the side of the angels. And then they're going to fly off and it's going to be like, right, okay. And, you know, I, I may have messed up along the way, but I am now on your side. But he didn't do that. And I was like, what? I can't. Just seriously, after all that, after all that, you're still going to help your sister. God damn it, Zuko. I got really angry at that point, but then I just kind of had yeah. Iroh's feeling just, you know what, I'm yeah. not angry, I'm just disappointed. Just disappointed. Yeah. The glare Iroh gives Zuko. Uh, yeah. To look is, down. Yeah, well, no, but he just, the, like, what, what are you doing? It's like, I put all this effort, all I poured my soul into you, and you betray me like this. How can you... I can't even look at you. Yeah. He even says at the end, I betrayed our uncle. No, he betrayed you. No, you betrayed him. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that Katara had Azula as well. She had beaten Azula, and Azula's like, whoa, this has actually never happened. And were it not for Zuko stepping in, they would have won. Oh, that entire fight scene was amazing. It got yeah. so big with Zuko using the fire whips to the octopus stance. Like, Ang did make so many mistakes. I mean, covering himself in crystal, that's mm-hmm. not going to protect you at all. It's very, very weak. That will shatter, yeah. <laughs> and it did. It's made of delicious rock candy. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> um, I really like the scene where Zuko and Katara are imprisoned together because you actually you don't consciously think about it straight away but Katara and Zuko actually have a lot in common and they they directly reference it I mean they both lost a mother because of all this and or the difference being that you know Katara has a father who genuinely loves her and wants to protect her and Zuko doesn't have that kind of support although he doesn't realize that Iroh is trying to be that for him um yeah and ha- it, it's just not like Iroh hasn't told him at least once yeah. i think of you as my own because they have that common ground you as the audience feel like okay Katara's going to be the one that turns Zuko she she is going to get him on Team Avatar ultimately that's not what pans out and having watched the entire series I think that was actually a very good uh, storytelling decision having that conflict Mm. I I don't actually think she'd have been able to heal his scar because um, she does use it on Aang's back and it leaves the mark still he survives but it doesn't remove the scar. That's not what the water does. So I think it would have failed, and Zuko would have felt worse for well, it. That, that's, that's what I was talking to about. This, talking about with the the scars don't heal thing. A scar is healed. That's the point. It is as healed yeah. as it's going to be. Yeah. So that's now part of him. Even though, interestingly, in his residual self-image, Zuko dreams of himself without the scar, because it's his shame. It's embodied. Everything that he could have been has been burned off his face. Whereas he should wear it with a badge of pride because it represents everything that the Fire Lord hates and that Zuko should be. He did that. He got that scar because he was ethical, because he cared about his men. He needs to be proud of it. And of course, it does have the flavour of Empire Strikes Back because they go up against the big bad and Aang becomes injured and then they get away, but after a great betrayal. So, down ending. Yeah. Well, they l- if they fly away on the Apple Falcon, 
<laughs> well, they're retreating. They're, they yeah. lost. They're just yeah. got managed to get out of there with their lives. And I really like that they're left in that state of the Earth nation is done. We lost. Mm. Because it also makes Azula that much more threatening. Because before yeah. with um, Zhao and Zuko in season one, it was kind of like, okay, these guys are, you know, a threat, but eventually Team Avatar are going to beat them. But with Azula, it's like, okay, this is a woman who is more than capable of dealing with these kids and you know, winning. She outwitted Long Feng. Yeah. That takes some doing. I love that. He wasn't even a player in yeah, the game. I love that line. That's such a great mm. way to end that whole exchange they have. See, that would have been, that would have been a really long... Did Josh, did you watch this when it was aired? or? No, I, I watched it on Netflix. See, I got to watch it straight away, but... I'm just looking at the dates here, and there was ten months until the yes. next episode. It was painful. That would have been murder. Poor Jerome. <laughs> <laughs> I, it was serious. Just chewing on the sideboard. When when do I get to see the end? And you've got to take into account the lag between US air date and UK air yeah. date. Oh. oh, God, as well, yeah. I, well, I, I think... And there has never been a better time to get into Avatar. If you folks listening have just finished watching Earth now, well done, because it means you are getting in when Korra has just come out and the rest of the world is learning about this so thing. Lucky. Because as it was going on, you know, up to like a year ago, I was like, even just like up to six months ago, I was like, eh, I don't know, it's kind of probably for kids, isn't it? And then there was that stupid movie. Yep. But... If you get into it now, then you can jump on the Korra train and be totally going forward with that with momentum for Series 2 of that. And also, all the DVDs are available in complete sets. The, the first series of Avatar was available in five separate DVDs with four episodes each on it. That's pathetic. <laughs> and you can also now, if you so wished, buy the complete thirty nine ninety nine box set, which is actually not much of a saving at all. But uh, it does get you them in a nice unified box. It's 36 on Amazon. Oh, right, so it's, it is a bit of a saving. Or, um, as Josh pointed out today on Twitter, every series is £9 each on Zowie at the moment. Oh, really? Yeah. Although I don't know why we're suggesting this to people. They've, they've got to have seen one and two by now. Yeah. If you haven't... I feel sorry If you haven't, you. and you've sat through us talking about it for three hours just today... Then um, watch it, please. Watch it. yourself. It's what are you doing? <laughs> watch it. Right. Um, thank you very much to my guests again. We will be back in one week time. Dan Floyd, would you like to actually pimp your show and not just tell us where you're from? <laughs> you did so much a better job of it last time. I should just let you do it from now on. I will copy paste what I said last week. Okay. Of course, I'm not going to. You do uh, it now. Fine. All right. Fine. Uh, I work on a show called Extra Credits that's on Penny Arcade TV. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday. Uh, we talk about video games, the video game industry. We try to uh, discuss games that are really pushing the medium forward and uh, just try to kind of fill everyone in on what how the industry works and uh, how it could possibly work better. They started off as like being sort of industry focused like if you're working in the industry this is sort of vital stuff you need to know but as you know, I suppose outsiders it's fascinating to actually watch this stuff. Well, thank you. No worries. Uh, Joshua Garrity. 
Uh, you can find me at caneandrince.com where we have a podcast which is dedicated to taking one game or a couple of games in a series, uh, really dissecting them and looking at them in detail. Uh, we, you can also find interesting articles and reviews on the site. Uh, you can also find me at gonzoplanet.com where I have a video series called The Animation Archives. Uh, there are two episodes out uh, at the moment, one on the series we're talking about and one on My Neighbor Totoro. Uh, please check them out. I'm very proud of them. Both of them are excellent. And thank you very, very much once again, especially to Dwayne. You've been up since, what, 5.30 this uh, morning? Oh, Christ, go away! <laughs> I'm so sorry. You are such a trooper. But, jeez, man, you shouldn't have to do this to yourself. I know pain is temporary artist forever, and this podcast will live on. But thank you so much, Dwayne, for coming on for that, this one. And Jerome McIntosh. No problem. Thank you for having me. And Sharon Shaw. Thank you. And we will be back next week for the concluding season of Avatar, The Legend of Aang. Before we move on to The Legend of Korra... To close out, I know there are a million YouTube AMVs utilising the music of this band, and while it applies to so many teenage boys angry at their fathers, this particular favourite song of mine fits Prince Zuko perfectly. So this is Linkin Park. Numb. Avatar State? Yip yip. Surface